Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Real Talk. I'm Ryan Jesperson on this uh, Tuesday morning. Good to have you here with us. That was Ayla Brooke and the Sound Men that were keeping us entertained as we uh, inched our way toward 8.30. We're thrilled to have you here uh, back where uh, many gathered yesterday to talk about issues that matter, to talk about things that are important to us. It's the mandate of this show, and of course, we'll continue that today. If you're new here, if yesterday was maybe your first time joining us on the show, or maybe you heard a bunch of buzz yesterday and you're just tuning in right now, you're not quite sure what to expect. Basically, we're going to keep it real. We're going to talk about things that are forefront. We're going we're gonna to take a look at some of the issues and the stories across Canada that are, that are making news, but we're going to dive into them and understand why they're making news. That includes following up on a story that uh, we paid keen attention to yesterday, what what virtually sort of uh, works out to a bit of a shuffle with regards to the premier's staff, the government of Alberta in response to this, this vacation gate that has so many people talking. But there are a lot of things going on as well. In Canada right now, the vaccine rollout is full steam ahead. This is a story demanding our attention. We're going to be talking about that today. We're also going to be checking in with a couple inspiring individuals including the founder of an organization called Rad Dads in Edmonton. Christian Basraba is the recipient of a Governor General's Award in teaching. We're going to celebrate that win and, and find out what makes him tick. Plus today, uh, we're going to check in with a woman who spent uh, a number of years uh, involved in the sex trade here in Canada. Now, I don't know what happened in her life uh, to change the course of that direction. She's going to tell us at 10 o'clock, but, but we're going to find out a little bit more what Andrea Heinz is all about. She's, she's now dedicated. She's making it her life's work to essentially, as far as I can tell, reconcile some of the things that she was doing before. Now, now let me get ahead of this and say, I understand that, that, you know, she describes herself now as a sex trade abolitionist. Uh, her mandate is exactly what it sounds like. And, 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 I know right now that in the conversation that we're going to have with Andrea around 10 o'clock today, we're going to get some pushback. There are going to be some people that say, uh, you know, work is work. People do whatever they want. Uh, there are many people I've interviewed many people that have 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 testified in front of parliament, if you will, that have that have gone uh, to our nation's capital, that have, that have banged the drum to actually turn things in the opposite direction. They want to see it legalized. They want to see more safe supports for people that work in the sex trade in Canada. So we're going to get into this with Andrea. I want to ask her about all of that. And if you have questions like I know many of you will throughout the show regarding the content that we're covering. We're going to be paying keen attention to our hashtag RealTalkRJ. That's a great way to get uh, issues, questions, comments on our radar this morning. Plus, of course, the live comments on our YouTube thread. Those are always ones that we're keeping an eye on. First, we want to let you know, as we do at the beginning of every show, that we're grateful for the support of Bitcoin Well. Bitcoin Well is the title, uh, the presenting sponsor of Real Talk, and uh, you can find them online. Obviously, they're having a they're, they're buckled up for a big year. They're 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 changing their brick and mortar location here in Edmonton. They've been growing their staff. They're getting set to go public, and of course, Bitcoin uh, has been having well a heck of a year through 2020. If you if you pay attention to cryptocurrency, I don't have to tell you that Bitcoin Well is the best and easiest way, the safest way to buy and sell Bitcoin. You can check them out online. All right, let's get going. Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, as mentioned, we're, we're going to be following up on the story that we led with yesterday. It's, it's basically the top 
political story in Canada and, and certainly one that has captured the attention of many Albertans as we've learned about more and more uh, politicians, uh, United Conservative politicians, uh, as well as across Canada. I mean, you take a look at the federal political landscape. It seems like there's a pretty significant number of elected representatives that did everything they could to to trumpet the benefits and the importance of this, uh, these these preventative health measures, these these lockdowns, so to speak. But but then, of course, when it came to the travel advisory elements of that, they didn't consider themselves to be, well, part of the crew. And it's resonating very poorly. If you take a look at political polling, we're going to get into what some of you have already told us on our Get Real Question of the Week presented by Y Station. I, I teed that up for you yesterday. You know, our Question of the Week every week gives you an opportunity to chime in uh, to whichever degree you'd like. If you want to keep it to the multiple choice responses, you can. If you'd like to to uh, you know expand your opinions and the feedback you're giving us, you can do that. Many of you are doing that this time around, and we're asking you if you think that the government's response to this has been sufficient to give you a sense. And, and I'm going to take a look. You know, it's called the dashboard. We can look in and, and peer in, and we're going to take a look one day in uh, to see what people are saying. But let me say this. Our question of the week last week gleaned about 400 responses. I think it was 392 off the top of my head, but right around 400 responses. I told you we'd like to get into quadruple digits. I said, I think just with regards to polling, it's always nice if it's if it has a thousand plus respondents. I, I just I don't know. I look at polls that have a thousand plus. I go, OK, you know, the bigger the sample size, probably the more accurate the reflection of general society and certainly this listening audience. So about 400 last week, one day in. Our question of the week this week already has more than 600 responses, which is great. So I suspect that by the end of the week, and I'm going to push this, I'm going to do what I can to make this happen. We'll have a thousand of you chiming in. So the questions we want you to take on uh, are, are all around the government. How would you rate your level of agreement with the following statements? And then we talk about, you know, I still have trust in this government. I trust non-elected public servants. Uh, this government has lost or not the moral authority to govern. Uh, early on in this, with more than 600 respondents, I can tell you this, 84% of respondents strongly agree that the government has lost moral authority, 84%. So that gives you some insight here. Now, what happened yesterday after we wrapped up our show? Uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, by way of a statement, not a public appearance, didn't take questions, but by way of a statement, announced that a few things are going to change. He said, I've listened to Albertans over the weekend uh, who are sending a clear message. That, that's like sort of like saying that, that if if 100,000 people showed up around the castle with burning torches and banging on drums and you could hear them, that you listened to them. Jason Kenney says he listened to Albertans. And so he says he accepted the resignation of Municipal Affairs Minister Tracy Allard. Now, she didn't resign her seat, friends. She's resigned her ministry. She's still an MLA out of Grand Prairie. And he's asked his chief of staff, Jamie Huckabee, to step down. He says he's also accepted the resignation uh, from all of these roles from his MLAs, J Jeremy Nixon and Jason Stefan and, you know, Tanya Fur, Pat Rain, Tani Yao have lost legislature committee responsibilities. All of them are still MLAs. There will be no by-elections at this point. So will Albertans perceive this to be enough? I don't think so. But we're going to pick the brains of a couple pretty smart people here right out of the gates this morning, including our lead off guest, Lisa Young. Dr. Young is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Doctor, welcome to the show and thanks for making time for us today. I think we might have you on mute, Lisa, if you want to just take a quick look on your end is it on, or is it maybe on our board? Are we good? To, let's try that again. Let's see if we can hear you now. 
Our board looks okay. We our board looks checked it. Okay, um, Lisa, why don't you just take a look at what your microphone? Okay, device I'll tell you is. what, Sam. I'm why don't back to you, you Ryan. sort yeah. that out with Lisa, and I'll get this figured out. That's no problem. We'll head right back to the dashboard. So if you want to take a look, uh, and if you'd like to participate in our question of the week, it's presented by Y Station, their official research and strategy partner of Real Talk. You just go to RyanJesperson.com, and right on the top bar of the website, you'll see it. Their question of the week. We hope to have at least a thousand of you participating in this uh, every week week we've got uh, as of right now about 600 responses to this uh 76 percent of respondents and keep in mind we only pushed this out uh, actually less well just about 24 hours ago uh right as we launched the show yesterday we pushed out our new question the new question of the week 76 percent of respondents at this point strongly disagree with the statement i have confidence in the government so 76 percent of you uh, say that you've lost confidence in the government. Uh, 78% of you disagree, strongly disagree that you still have trust in this government. So a slight difference there between trust and confidence. Uh, 83% of you strongly agree, 83% strongly agree that this travel scandal has irreparably damaged uh, the relationship here with the government. So these are some pretty huge numbers. Is Lisa ready to go? Okay, let's get back to Dr. Lisa Young out of the University of Calgary. Doctor, thanks for, for troubleshooting that with Sam in the background there. So I've just been putting some pretty interesting numbers out uh, that demonstrate that Albertans, uh, about the 600 that have responded at this point to our poll, are telling us that, that this scandal has had a very serious impact on how they perceive uh, their confidence uh, or or the trust that they have in this government. That's probably uh, the least surprising thing that I'm going to say today. Probably the most obvious thing I could say. Where's your head at with all of this now five days in? Well, I, I think that this really is a government in crisis. Um, I don't think that this is something that people are going to forget easily. Um, you know, it's the kind of scandal that just has, has hit people in the gut. Right. And I think we're all in, you know, everybody in Alberta and, you know, everywhere, frankly, is in a really different place than we normally are. Um, everybody's lives have been upended in some way, shape or form. And so it's not just sort of looking at what politicians do and saying, oh, gosh, you know, I don't think that the politicians should act this way. It's saying my life has been turned upside down and I feel it um, in, in a visceral sort of way when I see politicians not having to t make the same kinds of sacrifices that I've made. So, so that's one thing that's really noticeable. I think the other thing that's really noticeable is that it's brought pe together people on the left and the right. Um, Alberta's had incredibly polarized politics for the last few years. And all of a sudden, there's something that people can agree on. If you think that we shouldn't have these kinds of restrictions, then you're mad at the government for imposing them on you and then, you know, flying off to Hawaii and not having to live with them themselves. If you think that we should be having more restrictions, if you think the restrictions are important, then you're mad at the government for not living with the restrictions. So there's been this incredible coming together of people in Alberta across the political spectrum in their disappointment with the government. Now, uh, coming together will only go so far because if, if this has an impact on driving people uh, in a different direction with regards to their political support, not everybody's going to go to any one party. So so how does this play out? I mean, is this great news for the NDP? Is, is it great news for the Alberta party? Is it great news for Western independence movements in Alberta? Well, you know, we're two years away from an election, so yeah. it's it's dangerous to speculate. But certainly, 
you know, the, the people who don't want to see the restrictions that are currently in place are likely to go to a party further to the right. So the Western Independence Party or something like that. And as soon as you split the vote on the right, even if we don't have more people move to the NDP, it, it works to the NDP's advantage, right? Um, I think as well that there's lots of people who are sort of in the the center of the political spectrum who um, might have voted for the UCP for economic reasons in the last election and who might be willing to move back to the NDP, you know, who might have voted for them in 2015. Um, so, you know, the, the NDP might benefit from that. But, but I, as I say, two years away. Yeah. And, and which is an eternity. I mean, in, in politics, six months is an eternity. So I mean, could we could we also fairly say that a lot of you know conservatives in Alberta might be looking at the United Conservative Party and saying, hey, there's been a lot of groundwork done here. We, we've we've united the party, so to speak, or as much as you can, uh, possibly. And there's no real reason to blow up the party because Jason Kenney is not the party. Although I don't necessarily agree with that myself. I think that to a certain degree, Jason Kenney is the United Conservative Party. But there's a lot of talk. I mean, a lot of people yesterday were invoking the, the, the legacy of Alison Redford and how her Alberta political career wrapped up. Do you see some potential parallels here with regards to a, a mutiny of caucus? <sighs> I think that there are certainly problems inside the caucus, and I think there are going to be huge tensions uh, within the caucus, you know, between the people who traveled and the people who didn't travel and had to stay home and get those angry phone calls from their constituents. Um, so there's going to be trouble there. And I think a lot is going to be focused on the leader. How did he drop so many balls? Uh, and, you know, what about the people around him? The question is, you know, for a party that didn't exist three or four years ago, is there enough sense of the party as an entity that it can actually go on uh, without Kenny and the people around him is the question. And, you know, we can certainly see that the, you know, the cabinet pool is relatively shallow. It's, it's not clear that there's a lot of people, uh, you know, who can now be brought into cabinet. So uh, I'm not sure that we're in a situation that we're likely to see a, a successful revolt inside the UCP. So what does this mean? I mean, what does this mean for the the MLAs that did stay home that are unhappy that are I mean, like Lisa, people have people have been CCing our talk show on their emails to their constituency offices, on their emails to their MLAs. And we're getting a bunch of them. And I know that we're just getting one percent of these. So people are getting slammed with criticism right now. And there are the MLAs right now that are saying, I'm, I don't know if I'm up for this for the next two years. And quite frankly, I don't know if this party and this leader are reflecting my values. So what does this mean for these MLAs? Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think the real question here is, uh, what does it mean for Jason Kenney, right? Because mm -hmm. what he has to do now is to somehow bring his caucus together. And he's got an enormous task in front of him. And he's got to do it in the context of what's likely to be a bad few weeks uh, with the pandemic. So on the one hand, there's going to be pressure on him from public health officials, from people who might not have voted for the party to um, impose more restrictions like we're seeing in Ontario and Quebec. And on the other hand, he's got his caucus who maybe aren't so keen on the idea of more restrictions and who aren't so keen on Jason Kenney and, and the party leadership right now. So he is caught between a rock and a hard place and he has got to find some way to bring the caucus back on side and and try to bring the public back on side with government to some extent. Okay, so how does that I mean, probably I suspect 
there's two stories right now, right? I mean, there's a million stories right now, but but two of the big ones in Alberta are what what's going on here politically, and then the vaccination rates, which which actually have strongly improved over the past couple of days. We're going to be putting some charts in front of folks right around nine o'clock today in our newscast, so we can get a sense of that. A successful vaccine rollout ha- has to be a start. How does Jason Kenny? How did the United Conservatives start to attempt to indicate that they're prepared to repair the trust here with Albertans? Yeah. I think, you know, we already saw the premier putting a lot of emphasis on vaccination even before the holidays. And I think that we're likely to see more of that. And I think it's the right play for him. I think that what we have to see is for every day to be like yesterday when Alberta outperformed all of the other provinces in terms of getting vaccine into Albertans arms. And that is you know, the one thing that can unite people who want fewer restrictions and the people who think you want need more restrictions, it's it's what everybody wants and it helps change the channel and move things forward. So I think that this, this has to be really the single-minded focus of this government for the next number of months is, is all about an exceptional vaccination campaign because it's the only thing that moves us forward. Lisa, do you, like we, we were talking yesterday and I, and I wondered aloud, regardless of what happens, and we didn't know at that point, we suspected that Minister Allard would resign from cabinet, which she did. Uh, and there were some other shuffles. Jamie Huckabee sent packing the chief of staff, obviously, I'm sure with a rich government severance, that's beside the point. It's the way it works. But uh, we wondered if, you know, maybe this might be, I won't say meaningless, because it, it's not insignificant, uh, these announcements, but but whether or not Albertans would buy it. In other words, Jason Kenney went to the wall here on January 1st and said, I'm not punishing them. I'm, I'm not uh, sanctioning these MLAs who, quite frankly, you know, t- did nothing wrong. Now he says, well, Albertans made real sacrifices and obviously we have to make these changes. Does he get credit for doing it or is it too late or how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, it's it's too late, but it was better than not doing it. Sure. Um, you know, if he had continued, if he spent the month of January stonewalling as people continued to call for the heads of these, the, the folks who traveled, you know, that would have been a long, slow political death. Um, so he did the right thing, but a lot of damage has been done. And there's so much anger that built up just over the weekend. You know, people don't have a lot to do right now. Um so it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's again, it's a really difficult situation um, that he's put himself in and he's backed himself in a corner in so many ways. So ultimately, I mean, is, is Jason Kenney leading the United Conservatives into the next election? I mean, when you, when you look into your crystal ball, what does it tell you? You know, he he built this party as a personal vehicle. He's put his people in positions of authority all around him in in the party app, uh, apparatus for the party to emerge as, you know, something beyond Jason Kenney without his consent, I think, um, would be really surprising. So I if I had to put money on it, I would say that we would see Jason Kenney leading the UCP into the 2023 election. All right. Dr. Lisa Young is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. And we're grateful you were able to make time to join us this morning. Thank you for this. My pleasure. You can follow Lisa, uh, Professor Young on Twitter. Um, of course, uh, from my account at Ryan Jesperson, every morning we uh, send out the uh, appropriate uh, follow details for everybody, at least at the start of the show, that we know that will be joining us on the show 
uh, <laughs> Shayla is watching in this morning on YouTube. She says, yeah, who knew that this would be a thing that united Albertans? No kidding. Right. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's really the, 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 the YouTube comments yesterday. I, I just have to say, friends, you were, you were like, if I could just gather you all together and just, you know, well, I can't, I can't use all that. I was going to say, give you, you know, big handshakes, pats on the back. We can't talk like that right now. Can we <laughs> imagine Sam's like, yeah, yeah. imagine do we if have we, to get into handshakes again. Do we, we had a lot, we had a lot of people responding to our, yeah. our little debate on handshakes yesterday. <laughs> Although I don't know, I don't know if it was much of an actual debate, um, but but uh, hey, do, do we have Lori Adkin ready to go yet or no? We don't. Okay, so we're hanging tight for Lori Adkin. Uh, we're going to talk to that professor of political science out of the University of Alberta in just a little bit. But I wanted to make my point. So, there were a lot of eyes on the show yesterday, uh, which was awesome. And uh, if, if you joined us yesterday for the first time and you're back here today, thanks for coming back. This is how we roll. We talk about items in the news every morning. We, we break it down to what it means for us in our everyday lives. And, and then we go on better educated and better understanding what our fellow Albertans, our fellow Canadians are feeling. So a lot of eyes on the show yesterday and a lot of compliments about how, how are you two, and I don't mean to jinx it. I don't want to jinx it here, but a lot of comments on, 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 on how, uh, what do I say? How reputable, how honorable, how clean, how respectful the comments are, the debates are on our YouTube live comment threads. Really appreciate that. Uh, and of course, if you're watching our show later, if you go back, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, subscribe to, to our uh, channel. Um, you can watch all past shows and, and we have it cut. So the live comments or the comments that were live when we were live recording the show are all still there. So you can see what people were saying in real time, which I think is a really cool feature. We'll talk more politics in just a second. Right now, wanted to give a shout out to some of our uh, builders, we call them. These are the sponsors and the partners of Real Talk that do an amazing job joining us on our journey as we're now into our second month. Now pushing this out, that includes Park Power. Park Power is proud to sponsor the Real Talk RJ hashtag. And uh, well, by now, if you watch the show on a regular basis, you know that Park Power is in the internet natural gas and electricity game you got to pay somebody you got to have some provider there so why not make it them they're locally owned they operate locally obviously including their customer service and call centers and they're proud to share their profits with local charities and right now when you sign up at parkpower.ca residential or commercial service and use the promo code 2021-realtalk 2021-realtalk they will take 70 bucks off your first bill. Shout out to Park Power for that. Very cool. Alta Moving and Storage, uh, another one of our partners here based proudly in Western Canada. Alberta owned, operating in Alberta, providing, as it sounds, moving and storage solutions for you, whether it's long or short-term storage you're looking for. If you have a big move-in store, everybody's going with these pod-style containers now. They drop them off at your place, you load them up at your leisure, or they can bring movers to do it for you. Drop it off at the new place, handle it nice and easy, and you move at your pace. They're all about finding perfect solutions, what works for you at Alta Moving and Storage. You can check them out at altastorage.ca or give them a call at 780-993-2582. And yesterday, we rolled out a new partnership with Kubi Energy. We're really excited about this one. We were telling you early next week, you're going to see a feature. So, so this is going to be like the mirror of Trash Talk. Trash Talk, you can get things off your chest at the end of the week. With Kubi Energy, this new feature that we're rolling out, it's allowing us to focus on the positive, the things that make us laugh, the things that make us smile. I'm really excited about this, and these will be based on submissions of 
stories you share with us. Whether it's an amazing photo of a sunrise or a video of your kids playing, I don't know, on the backyard rink you're so proud you put hundreds of hours into. Maybe it's a letter on how 2020 was actually really good for your mental health, or maybe it's about your New Year's resolution. Whatever it is, a good news story, something inspiring, Kubi Energy is going to bring that to us every week. You can submit your stories, your photos, your videos via talk at ryanjesperson.com. Kubi is a residential, commercial, and institutional solar and battery storage specialist. They're a Tesla-certified installer, proudly founded in Edmonton, but they work across Western Canada. You want to see a couple of the... And I, I asked, I reached out to the team, Sam, at Kubi Energy. I said, hey, can you send me some examples of some cool work you've done so we can tell people? And they said, yeah, you want to know about our badass projects? They said, our badass projects, worth noting, the Edmonton Convention Center. Have you seen those solar panels? Is that the one that is, um, it's like a Morse code... Yes. Um, yeah. A poem, Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, it's like, it sort of reminds me, I don't think Kubi's going to appreciate this, but it's kind of like the, it looks like the Illuminati built this thing but it's all <laughs> they're gonna be a like, lot of edmonton whoa, whoa, whoa. looks like the illuminati built it we're a little obsessed with pyramids the matards yeah city, city hall. hall yeah <laughs> never really thought about that actually kubi's like jess but would you mind just giving them our website so we can move on here uh but yeah you can get into you know what we'll do is we'll get jake from kubi on the show to talk to us and to tell us about these solar panels because you're right there's like all these hidden messages and it's super cool uh you can check out kubi energy uh by visiting the sponsors link at ryanjesperson.com is Lori adkin ready to rock and roll okay so no worries we'll talk to Lori some other time um speaking of videos that are making us smile can you load up that i i, I never did i ever think i would say this on the show hey listen let me tell you something before we go any further, this dashboard I'm telling you about, this opportunity that we have to to check in and see who's answering our questions, who's participating in the real talk, the get real, we call it get real, our question of the week, who's participating. We, we, we can glean some understanding of what our audience looks like, which is really exciting. Uh, a young, engaged, educated audience, an audience that cares. And there's really great balance. Like, let me tell you, let me take you behind the curtain here for a second. Like 59% of our respondents this week and by that, I mean, in the last 24 hours, you know, it's Tuesday morning, obviously 59% fall within the 35 to 54 age range, 59%. So the majority, which is, which is pretty cool, about 20%, 19% are 18 to 34, 22% are 55 plus. So we've got this great cross section and, and, but I'm really excited about one in five, one in five viewers, listeners, subscribers to our podcast, one in five participants uh, to our question of the week are within the ages of 18 to 34. Now, how do you reach people? How do you talk to people aged 18 to 34 these days? You do it on TikTok. And so I've been trying to decide whether or not I should get my butt on TikTok. What I've discovered with TikTok is it is where people are finding audiences of hundreds of thousands of folks as they push out their political interpretations. And I absolutely loved this one that I saw yesterday. Let's take a look to Alberta, everybody, where you don't have to follow the COVID guidelines so long as you're an elected official. I don't typically like to sit down and make political videos because I enjoy feeling happy, but I'm so fucking mad. The number keeps rising, but there are now 10 UCP MLAs confirmed to have left the country over the holidays for vacation. So Albertans were told not to see our family, not to see our friends, not to travel unless it was absolutely essential, but you get to go to Hawaii because it's a 17-year family tradition. I don't care, Tracy from Grand Prairie. I really don't. Tracy from Grand Prairie is in charge of vaccine rollout, by the way. And yes, if you're wondering, we did miss our end of the year goal. 
Now, if I recall correctly, and I do, this is the same party that's been preaching personal responsibility as a COVID response for the past six months. And Jason Kenney, ever the ineffectual chaperone, said that he should have made himself more clear when telling his staff not to travel. I'm sorry, were these guidelines not clear enough for you? How are you preaching personal responsibility and attempting to hold on to the respect of a province when you can't even keep track of your ministers, Jason? So yeah, welcome to Alberta, where personal responsibility is very important to all of us, clearly. Okay, so there, so there you go. And I can see response right now. A lot of you are saying, yeah, yeah, political TikTok. Yeah, get on there. Uh, others others are saying to me, <laughs> Sharon loves it, Tracy from Grand Prairie. I thought that was pretty funny, too. But here's the thing is, is like, I don't, I don't know about, I, I don't, I felt the same way about Twitter. And that was like 10 years ago. And now all of a sudden I'm realizing I'm that old guy. But I'm thinking about getting on TikTok. You, well, I mean, the truth is I did sign up for TikTok. You can find me on TikTok. There's just nothing there yet. But I did. I wanted to go get the, to go lock it in. And so we've got it there. So maybe we'll take our political commentary. A lot of people, like Judy says, well done. Sharon says, I love it. Raz says she's on fire. People love it. So there you go. We're going to be integrating more content uh, from these types of platforms into the show. So if you see a TikTok video that you absolutely love, you think that that the real talkers would love it. If you see videos on Twitter, Instagram, whatever the case may be, you know where to find me there. And we'd love to hear from you. This is the type of show that obviously you play a big part in when it comes to what we're talking about and the type of content that we're featuring here. Uh, we're going to be checking in with a winner of a governor general's award in teaching. This is a conversation. I'm really looking forward to having uh, coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, I'm still reading these comments. Kim says uh, our high schoolers get all their political news on TikTok and it's high quality information. Says they oftentimes have information ahead of me. Uh, Says they know who you are, Ryan. So get on it. They are voters soon. Exactly. Right. That's the thing. Uh, (laughs) Although, what is this? It says, just believe in I am too old for TikTok. Don't do it. Am I too old for TikTok? Am I too old for a lot? Should I just stay on Facebook like everybody else? You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else. You can come harass me there. No problem. Uh, We're going to be, yeah, as mentioned, talking to Christian Bassarab in just a little bit. Why don't we focus here? on a couple of the other par- partners uh, that obviously have joined us on this journey and allow us to make this happen, to bring you Real Talk from our Real Talk studio each and every morning. It includes the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. So grateful for their sponsorship. They are the go-to dealerships when you're talking about the Jeep brand in Alberta. Have you seen the Jeep? Anyway, I'm a, Jeep is a lifestyle. Uh, if you're into Jeeps, you know that, the Jeep wave and everything else. My first vehicle was a Jeep and my second one and my fourth one and my fifth one. Uh, Once you drive a Jeep, it's tough to drive anything else. And at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, they're very proud to be ready to tell you about this selection that they've got rolling out in 2021. The Jeep lineup looks unbelievable, including that Grand Wagoneer that's going to be coming out. It, It took a hiatus and they're bringing it back and it looks amazing. At Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, they've got you covered there. It is your Jeep headquarters in the province of Alberta. We're also very thankful for the team at Clean Air Club that keeps the air in this studio breathable and as fresh as possible. We asked them, we tasked them with that. We asked them to do an audit in our studio, and they did. They hooked us up with a big purifier, everything else. They keep an eye on it for us, but what they do for you... Well, they make sure that your furnace filters are being changed at a regular pace so your family can breathe easy. If you've ever changed a furnace filter, you know the drill. You pull it out and you go, oh, right? It's like back in the day when maybe you were like misbehaving and not brushing your teeth enough and the, and the hygienist would like show you the mirror of the back of the molar and you'd be like, whoa, that's my mouth? 
that's the air in your house right now. Sign up at cleanairclub.ca. You just tell them the size of the furnace filter you need. It's written right on the filter, right in the furnace there. And then they do the rest. They drop it off at your front door, oftentimes in the next day. I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that. Your family can breathe easier and you can save money at cleanairclub.ca. Let's take a look at the stories that are making headlines this morning. Well, colleagues of Joe Corral are mourning the loss of the man that worked as a healthcare aide at Bethany Riverview Long-Term Care Home, died on December 28th from COVID-19 at the age of 61. Joe is the first official death recorded of a healthcare worker in Alberta, long-term care center in Southeast Calgary. Again, Bethany Riverview Long-Term Care Home mourning the loss of the man described as a very popular and well-loved healthcare aide. Meantime, Alberta ramping up its vaccine delivery. Our thanks to economist Dr. Trevor Toome for these graphs. If we take a look at how Alberta's performed over the past number of days, as you can see, we were we were falling behind December 19th. You're looking for the, the dark navy line there. December 22nd, right around Christmas, languishing uh, I mean, essentially ahead of only Ontario. And then, as you can see, efforts on uh, New Year's Eve into New Year's Day and then a big day uh, yesterday have Alberta's numbers leading the country. Uh, the share of distributed vaccines administered as of yesterday, as of Monday, you can see here that Alberta right near the top of the charts. These are the share of COVID-19 vaccine doses distributed to each province or territory that has been administrated. And then here's another one that gives you a sense of doses administered, doses distributed uh, across Canada. Again, these graphs, if you'd like to get into them and read some of the comments as Dr. Toom breaks them down. Trevor Toom, an economist at the University of Calgary, you can follow him there on Twitter. Now, here's a story that's 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 kind of making news online, and we're working to verify exactly what's going on here. Uh, but Sam, let's take a look at that tweet from the doc. Speaking of vaccines, now you remember Dr. Tessin Lada was on our show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she's got a lot of people's attention here this morning as it shows the unused doses, she says, of the vaccine in opened vials being discarded. At the end of the day, Alberta Health Services, uh, she says, uh, directing staff to waste the vaccine as opposed to administering it to people not in phase 1A of the rollout. She describes it as another massive failure and says this according to several healthcare workers who have been advised to do exactly that. Now, we're working this from behind the scenes as best we can to verify it and to get an interview on this, but Alberta Health Services has responded uh, saying, hey, listen, AHS is rapidly immunizing as many Albertans as quickly as possible, ensuring the vaccine doses are utilized. There have been no reports of significant wastage. Uh, says this, reads this statement from AHS Media. If and when we have an appointment cancellation for a vaccination, we administer the allocated dose to the next person in line. Any currently unused doses are going to be administered to eligible Albertans in the coming days. So that's a story that we're keeping an eye on. I saw a doctor was tweeting uh, yesterday. He said, hey, listen, because these are, you know, they, I, my understanding is they have to be kept at about minus 70 degrees. Uh, that may not be 100% accurate. I was reading that online. You got to be careful. But we all know it's got to be frozen at least. Let's agree on that. And one of the doctors said, well, once it's been out of the freezer, it's kind of like chicken or fish. You want to refreeze it again. You know what I mean? Uh, people are going to be going, Jesperson's comparing the 
vaccine to chicken or fish. Uh, but you don't want to refreeze it. You can't refreeze it and then thaw it again and then use it again. So one doctor said, well, maybe, you know, nurses should be able to just take it home. Um, I'm done with the news. We can bring the, new, the music down. But sort of said, you know, what we could do is like we could send the vaccine home, uh, Sam, with nurses who could then keep track of who they vaccinated uh, as part of a community effort and then notify Alberta Health Services. These people have been and I, and I sort of sat there and I thought I'm all about coming up with creative and unconventional solutions. But that sounds like a terrible idea to me to be essentially to be. Can you imagine if you knew it's like, you know, somebody on the inside, you you know, somebody that has access to the vaccine that is permitted to bring it home. And admit, I, I thought that that's that's how you start getting into like, I'm actually trying to imagine <clears throat> any scenario where I would think bringing a vaccine home would be the right choice. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just I don't like what? <laughs> I know that I know like, that like, people are trying all, to find solutions. Have, have deep cold freezers at home? Do they have access to dry ice? No, that's have, not the point. Oh, that's not the point. It's expiring, right? Yeah, it's expiring. Yeah. So, they, so then they can distribute it, but uh, uh, or it just distribute it better. Yeah. Like, um, so there you go. Uh, do we have Christian ready to rock and roll? Okay, let's get to this, ladies and gentlemen. I have been this. This is a conversation that we've we've had in the books for a while. Uh, the minute that I saw. Uh, what this guy was up to, a Sherwood Park teacher out of Salisbury Composite High School, we reached out, we said, we got to get him on Real Talk. So, so here's the deal. Uh, before we say hello, uh, Christian Basaraba teaches what, what he calls this skatepreneur, like skateboard, skatepreneur course. Um, and, and one of his recent projects was designed to explore colonialism, creativity, and reconciliation with skateboards. That's right, skateboard design. Now, here's the deal. A few people caught wind of this and a few people started paying attention to this. And ultimately, we have a governor general's award winner as we welcome Christian Basarabba to the program. My man, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Real Talk. Hey, thanks for having me. Am it's I pronounce, uh, Am I pronouncing your name? Here. OK, Christian? Yeah. OK, yeah. this is okay. are these these are clearly some of the boards behind you. These are some of the decks behind you. Can you tell us what we're seeing here? Can you introduce us to this art? Uh, sure. Well, these aren't aren't student ones, but uh, all, all those were sold at an auction uh, oh, that I had. Right. So we we auctioned them off. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But the one uh, where it has uh, I'm pointing to right now. This is a, a pro model um, of Joe Buffalo. So Joe Buffalo is a pro skater out of Vancouver. Uh, he he was he grew up in Massachusetts, Alberta, and he was part of the project. Um, came in and, and was a guest speaker, and, and we 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 formed this kind of relationship that I'll I'll get into. And then on the other side, uh, J Cat. Uh, so this is John Cardinal, a Cree artist, uh, local Cree artist, and. He was uh, the artist that actually worked with the students. And so this was his kind of contribution to the project that uh, proudly uh, hangs in my home right now. Absolutely stunning. Where did you, have you always been, I mean, with regards to, I mean, we're going to talk about, you, you're a, a real, uh, I'm going to say a community organizer. You're a guy that's done a lot to bring people together. You're the founder of a, a group we'll talk about, Rad Dads Edmonton. And and I know you're big in the arts. You're the lead singer in a punk rock cover band. I mean, you're, you're a guy that has a lot going on. How did, how did you come up with the idea uh, ultimately, like we said, the one that that, w that resulted in you earning and, and being awarded a Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Teaching. Uh, where did you find that intersection of, of art, skateboarding, and reconciliation? 
Um, well, <laughs> there's so many, so many thing influences, I guess that uh, that I could kind of touch on. But the the main influence um, with the, with the project uh, was from a, a company out of uh, Saskatchewan called Colonialism Skateboards, and so it was uh, created. Uh, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago by a, an artist and skateboarder educator named Michael uh, Lagnon. And so he, you know, his, his mandate is to educate through skateboarding. And so with the class that you kind of mentioned, this, this skate entrepreneur class that I created um, at, at my high school, we... Do you want me to go into it? I kind of talk about that. So yeah, we, I created, no, yeah. we have, we have, we have all the time in the world. Okay. I would love to there hear it. Um, so that, um, that class, which is a career and technology studies class uh, that I created was really inspired by the work of uh, a guy named Craig Morrison out of Toronto. And so he has, or kind of runs an alternative school called the Oasis Skateboard Factory. And so um, basically I, I kind of modeled my class after him. I was able to to go there a couple of years ago and, and spend about a week there with him, kind of learning what he does. And so it's an alternative school design program that uh, students earn high school credits by creating their own skateboard brand and then running their own skateboard business. And so my class is essentially the same as his in in the fact that uh, that's what I do with my students. They 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 create a brand. We look at, um, you know, we, we kind of preempt it with, you know, looking at what an entrepreneur is, uh, business types, that sort of thing. And then I, I challenge them to create their own brand, their own brand name, their brand purpose, uh, a brand logo. And then once we have kind of that established or the students have that established, we um, I get them to create brand assets or brand, um, yeah, brand assets. So we actually hand make skateboards in the classroom. We uh, get them to do sticker design. And so we work with a, a local sticker company to do that, uh, they do T-shirts, they do uh, branded grip tape, and so all in that process of creating those brand assets and those those things, kind of for their business, um, we we look at obviously we study it and, and and look at different brands, Canadian brands, that sort of thing, and so that's where the colonialism kind of piece comes in, and then. I, I talk about and, and get them to look at brand collaborations. And so that's kind of where this project came in. So I, you know, looked at colonialism skateboards, what they were doing. I wanted to model a project based after what he's doing. And I wanted my students to work with an indigenous artist in terms of the brand collaboration with, with Jake. I mean, so much of this is just making connections, right? Uh, to state the obvious, putting people in touch. Um, I would imagine that your students uh, have gone on their own journeys and individual journeys, uh, therefore probably very meaningful journeys on understanding uh, Canada's history with its indigenous people and, and some of the issues that persist and remain and, and maybe even to start thinking about some of the solutions as a, as a teacher uh, invested in the lives of these high school students. What sort of an impact did you note from this project on the, on the young learners? Uh, that's hard. Like, you know, it's hard for me to to answer because it's still. I think it's still ongoing. Yeah, uh, sure. It, it was. It was just. Uh, it's. I really believe it's a project that I can continue to do and do do annually and just kind of build on it. It's. It's created so many different relationships, um, even including me. The relationships that I had. So you know, with that project, my, my goal was to engage students with with Canada's colonial past, and so we we looked at some topics such as residential schools. Uh, the uh, missing and, and, and murdered Indigenous women, girls inquiry, 
And so those are kind of maybe the two main big topics that students tackled with their skateboard graphics. And so some of the things that we, we wanted them or I wanted them to do is to kind of address this legacy of colonization, the systemic racism that we, we tend to see amongst uh, or towards Indigenous culture and, and people. We also incorporated foundational knowledge, uh, you know, explored historical and active documents such as Treaty Indian Act. Uh, we looked at the TRC's 94 calls to action, the UNDRIP, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And then one of the big things that I always look at, because part of this project was funded by a grant uh, through uh, the Social Justice Education Grant through the Aspen Foundation. And uh, I've, I've been successful in, it in the last kind of four or five years uh, in my current role in, in procuring a, bu a bunch of grants. And my, my big thing is, you know, when I look at a grant, what I want my students to do is I want them to work with community members. And so I want them to pay I want, to, I want to use that grant to pay people to kind of come in and uh, teach my students, you know, like for this project, for example, I wanted you know, them to work with JCAT. I wanted him to host a number of workshops, kind of lead them with the arts. And then I wanted to bring in Joe Buffalo, uh, you know, to talk about his story. So he's, you know, a pro skater. He's battled addiction to substance abuse his, his whole life and uh, truly an inspiration uh, and found this, you know, this outlet through, through through skateboarding and, and he's had experience in, in a survivor residential school. And so, um, you know, I kind of lost where I was going with that. You know, it's, it's the idea that, so the, the students really gravitated towards JCAT. They really, they, they were closely with him. Uh, they were kind of inspired. He was inspired by the students. So there's that intergenerational relationship there. Joe came in, told his story. Now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of the NCTCA uh, committee, which is the North Central Teachers Convention Association. And so what we, we did is, is Joe is going to actually be a guest speaker uh, at our teachers convention. So it's that, uh, that connection again, that kind of, you, you know, you, that you talked about. So I don't know. It's I all, it's, trying to say is it's the all reconciliation about connection, piece right? is all about the connection. Yeah, 100%. It, it's about community. And so what one of the things that I'm, I'm really proud of is that we exhibited all the work at uh, a local skate shop. And so that was kind of the culmination of that project. We, we said, okay, we have about 17 boards. Uh, and so we had an, an art exhibit set up at local 124 for about five weeks. And, um, you know, in our opening exhibit, we had uh, you know, a number of people come out. We had a, a skateboard demonstration because the, they have a little mini ramp in, the, in their in their shop. And so we had the full circle skateboard team. And so full circle is also, we, we looked at them as a brand. So it's an Edmonton brand that looks at and tries to raise awareness for mental health issues. And so that was kind of a, another kind of piece or another connection that I brought into the, to the project. Christian, you know, what's, you know, what's really jumping out at me here is the, is, is the conversations that we've had, but, but oftentimes um, as stupid as this sounds, we have a, we, we have a conversation involving people uh, talking about curriculum and indigenous history and reconciliation. And, and then, but we realize that nobody that's participating in the conversation is actually in front of students in a classroom. So what this is doing is restoring my faith uh, to a certain degree, at least at the school that you teach at that, there is some meaningful discussion happening on reconciliation that there is uh, the inclusion in, in the curriculum or at least how you're delivering it um, uh, that that's pushing students to better understand the history of, of Canada as we understand it now Canada before 1867 etc I mean is that are you the outlier here or, or do you think that the general public maybe isn't aware of some of the conversations that are happening um 
Oh, it's a good question. You know, I, I couldn't couldn't speak to the public, but I but I I do feel that uh, we're getting better uh, at having that conversation. We're we're getting better as educators as uh, bringing these things. You know, there is you know it's it's part of the the TQS the teacher quality standards now. I am a bit worried, actually, and a bit concerned. You know, here here when I show that you know has some political. Uh, <laughs> people are, are fired up obviously and so this is you know the UCP curriculum plan you know isn't really out yet but there there has been things that you know suggest that you know Chris Champion suggests that leaving out residential schools calling the inclusion of in indigenous culture uh, a fad and so that's something that's quite concerning as an educator uh, for me because th these are these are issues that I feel that need to kind of be brought to the forefront. It's also, I think uh, teachers find it difficult because we're not really sure. I'm not really sure, you know, I, I wanted to bring in th these leaders, you know, I wanted to bring in JCAT to kind of tell his story. I wanted to bring in Joe Buffalo to tell his story. So these are in indigenous leaders that, that I bring into the community and let them tell their story because I learn from them. Uh, I'm, I'm not in, in no way an expert in, indigenous education i'm a science teacher that likes skateboards and skateboard art well you're you're i mean you're being drawn to something that you care about obviously and and i, I think it's it's remarkable um i, I do want to note that to beaver uh that's that's the uh the handle that this viewer uses and as soon as i said this now i've lost the comment because so many people are chiming in on this which is awesome um but to beaver sort of checked me on something that i just said and i want to acknowledge this uh said ryan we are not uh, you know canada's indigenous we are our own nations uh, and you might just say those whose lands we stole that from two beaver. I always want these, this feedback in these comments to be part of this conversation is we, we pay attention to our language and our understanding, our interpretation of these stories. Um, Christian, ultimately, so I know you're going to you're going to say and, and, and it's predictable because you care about your students and this, you're going to say this isn't about winning awards. And and, and you know, you're obviously the student's journey is the most important. And that is the truth, obviously, of course. However, uh, you did win a pretty high profile award that I would imagine means a lot to you. The Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Teaching. I mean, that's the type of thing that doesn't get rolled up into the sock drawer. That's the type of thing that gets framed and hung. What did it mean? What did it say to you uh, when you were recognized with this? <laughs> I'm going to say when I, you said I shouldn't say it. It's not really about the award. Well, I wanted to get ahead uh, of that. So, so let, <laughs> let's cut through uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely an honor for sure. You know, it's, um, it's, it's to me is like a, a feather in the hat for all the hard work that I've done, you know, in the last, you know, it's my 20th year of teaching. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to think I'm a <laughs> pretty engaging teacher and, and, and have worked really hard to kind of get where I am uh, the last four years, kind of building this, uh, allowing me to do this kind of the skateboard class, which uh, it's kind of almost like a dream of mine. You know, I, I get to build skateboards with kids uh, and teach them kind of the basics of branding, uh, that sort of thing. You know, you know, I still teach science and physics and stuff is, is my jam. But um, and also to kind of just see it was just a kind of a, a different thing. You know, for my, my most of my career, I've been doing physics and high level physics and chemistry teaching and science teaching education. And, you know, you get satisfaction of that, of course. But. I've never really had that experience of what it was like to see students kind of create uh, things from, from scratch. And that was so rewarding. And that's kind of the, the piece of, you know, especially with this project 
and some of the boards that came out, you know, they, they all, they've all been sold and went, went to auction, but um, you know, some of them, you know, the, the images that they have and showing their, their learning about, especially about residential schools, there were some of the meaning, more meaningful boards to me. And the fact that, you know, these students get it here, we're talking about, you know, students that are 15, 16, 17, and they're, they're really delving into our, our dark colonial past and, and uh, the skateboard project provided them with a voice. Uh, so it's, it's, which to me was really inspiring and hopeful uh, for, for Canada's future. What's can can you tell us a little bit about next step high school in in Sherwood Park? Like it, it it just it it's got a bit of a different name, and for those yeah. that aren't familiar with it, I would imagine it it sounds to me like it might be a little bit of a different approach. Is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's our outreach school, so it's an outreach school for for my district, and so I, I did the project at Salisbury, which is like would someone say a traditional high school, right. uh, you know, a population of about thousands. So I. I, I teach mainly uh, at the outreach school. And so I'm responsible for all the high school uh, science, do a little bit of art and, and some projects I've, I've done there. And then I would head over to Sal to, to do the skateboard class. And so the outreach is, it's really a, an outreach, uh, you know, next step story is it's an outreach school for, for students, uh, I guess, you know, that don't fit the traditional uh, high school. Uh, yeah. There could be many different reasons. Uh, we, we deal with students that are, you know, high-level athletes, for example. So figure skaters and dancers, they just can't, their, their training schedule just doesn't allow the, their, you know, the, them to, to fit in a traditional school in terms of schedule. We have uh, students that have high levels of anxiety and just don't fit in with large groups. Um, and then, you know, we have students that deal with addiction issues, for example, or, or just, you know, just daily struggles uh, of life. And, and we're just uh, trying to encourage them to, to get their, their high school diploma and kind of help them with that. And so, you know, we got these, these outliers. I, li- I like to say, like, kind of the, the outliers, uh, kind of like skateboarders, you know, it's like there's, I, I grew up being a skateboarder. It was you know, skateboarding. I still see, although it's, you know, really po- getting popular, it's becoming an Olympic sport and that sort of thing. I still think it's really kind of a, counterculture, um, uh, a, a rebellious type thing. It's an individualistic kind of, kind of sport. Uh, if we look at what pro skaters do, you know, there are some that, that get paid lots of money to do what they do, but generally they don't kind of compete. They, they do their own thing and, and, and um, uh, they're super creative. Uh, and that's kind of how I approach, I guess, my life and also <laughs> my teaching career. How has, how has, uh, uh, this is kind of a weird question. I'm, I'm going to ask you, like, how how has the impact of uh, COVID or how has this pandemic impacted these students, uh, you know, as compared to. But I mean, how do you know? Because all you know is your students. So, I mean, maybe you can just comment more generally on on what you've seen. I mean, I know that, you know, some kids are going to be going back to school. I've seen, I've seen a lot of parents of elementary age kids going like, oh, thank God, they're going back to school on January 11th. And then there are people that have real concerns taking a look at some of the COVID numbers and going, we're all we're sending them all back to school now. And and some people have been keeping their learners at home. And there's been different implications for junior high and high school students. What's it look like from your perspective? Uh, it's a challenge for sure. Um, you know, it's especially at the outreach school, you know, one of the things that we, we, we strive really hard to do is make you know, these really deep, authentic relationships with our students. Not saying that teachers don't do that, you know, 
but it's I think it's a bit different in a class of you know 35 to, to 40 students or you know maybe even 45 students depending what school you're at and um, uh, but we, we tend to have a, a smaller population. Students are doing it a self-directed learning model, a hybrid type of, type of thing. And so we, we tend to have more close one-on-one conversations with our students. And so those are, there's not as, as many of those. Or it's, it's a bit more challenging to have those with, with our students uh, being kind of afraid to come into the building and, and, and see us and stuff. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's again, going back to the a theme that we've been talking about, you know, making connections uh, and relationships. And so it's been a lot more difficult to make those uh, connections and relationships with students because of COVID. Before I let you go, Christian, I just I just checked the clock and I went, oh, wow, it's 926 already. I feel like you're, you're the type of yeah. guy that we could, we'd, we'd go and sit down for a beer and then we'd end up having like nine of them. But um, I wanted to ask you about Rad Dads Edmonton, which uh, I mean, it's it the name itself is compelling. The branding is compelling. And the minute that I mentioned that you were going to be on this morning, the founder of Rad Dads, you guys have the organization. Obviously, you do a podcast as well. I had a bunch of buddies reaching out to me and I'm getting texts on my personal phone of of guys that are wearing their Rad Dads t-shirts that are like repping them this morning that are proud to have you here. What's it all about? Who's it for? What's the deal? Oh man, that, that's like another hour. Another yeah, that's hour, another yeah. couple couple beers, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, to, I guess to my, my 30 second elevator speech, I actually use Rad Dads as my brand to kind of model for the students and kind of talk about it. So, so my kind of 30 second speech, you know, spiel or elevator speech for Rad Dads uh, is, is a group, uh, uh, I guess our, our, our main purpose is to promote positive parenting and to empower dads uh, to get involved in their kids' lives and, and get involved with the community. And so there's a number of ways that we do that. Uh, one, we, we host events, although we haven't really hosted events uh, lately, uh, just for dad nights. We've hosted uh, family events, uh, various things like a Halloween party, for example. And then we try to inspire dads with the, the, the podcast, so the Rad Dad Show. Um, we kind of, we, we, we try to interview dads that inspire us in, in some way. And hopefully dads out there listening, um, you know, get inspired and just, uh, yeah, it's just about, again, making uh, positive community connections and bringing people together and just kind of putting out some good in the world. And, and hopefully that, that, that good kind of comes back to us. I love it. Well, hey, listen, it's a real pleasure to have you here on the show. We want to, you know, one of our mandates here that we're really serious about is shining a light on people and providing a platform for for people that are uh, change makers that are, you know, making real tangible impacts and challenging their fellow community members uh, in the right direction. And uh, you're doing it in a number of different ways. Um, and plus the governor general's award. I mean, you know, we had to get you on just for that pal. So congratulations, keep it up. And, uh, and I'll look forward to the next time our paths cross. Thanks for making time for us today. Thanks Ryan. It's a pleasure. You got it. That's uh, Christian Basarab. I love it. That the, just the project itself. And I know I'm, I'm reading some of the comments, uh, on YouTube. Those of you that are, that are watching here live and, and obviously he's an impressive guy. Um, so and there's also a great conversation that's going on. Uh, people talking about language um, with regards to uh, First Nations in Canada and um, 
and I just can I just say uh, just to, and and I'm and I and I don't want to dive too deep into it right now because I've not read all of the comments here, uh, but I certainly will. Um, but it's it's just it means a lot to know that we're having respectful conversations. Like we by bringing someone like Christian on or many other people that were on, we saw it, to a certain degree the same thing happening when Adam North Pagan was here, uh, president of the '60s Scoop society uh he joined us on that anti-racism roundtable which was a really powerful conversation uh saw some similar conversations happening here um you you bring on the guests and then it kind of sets the table number one for what the guest wants to say and the perspective that the guest brings but it also brings out or facilitates let me say the conversation with you with our with our viewing audience with our listening audience and, and of course the conversations will continue when our podcast subscribers a little later in the day download this and start listening and then start using that real talk RJ hashtag as well. Um, and, and it means a lot to see these conversations happening. So from us here in the studio to you at home or wherever you're watching, thank you for participating in these conversations. We appreciate it. Want to give a shout out to uh, partners uh, that are, well, we call them the builders on Real Talk because their support means a whole lot to us. And uh, when we describe a builder, I think it goes without saying, they're the ones that have allowed us to, well, to, to put the studio together, to put the infrastructure together, and to get in front of you each and every morning. It's because they care about conversation. They care about us tackling these issues as much as we do. That includes the team at Local Waste. They were one of the first to step up, Local Waste Services was, and say, hey, we want to be a part of what you guys are doing. As a matter of fact, I love this pitch where they said, you were canned. They said you were canned by a billion. Did you ever read this? You, yeah. They said this is amazing. They said they said uh, I was canned by a billion dollar corporation for speaking my mind, tossed out like yesterday's trash. So that's why I'm proud to tell you about the Real Talk sponsor, Local Waste. It took you two months to read that copy. I know. I think yeah. it was it was supplied copy, and I thought that's actually. <laughs> It's actually pretty good. <laughs> I was sort of waiting for the right moment to roll it out. So here you have it. It just felt right. We're talking about who's building with us, who is here from the beginning. Local Waste is an independent organization that's run by local families taking on the big multinational garbage companies, and they want your business today. They want to fight for it, but like not in a combative way. But they're going to give you an offer. I've seen them do it. I've seen it in real time, making these introductions, the one that makes most sense for your business. So they're give Chris... Or what, what they I know. I've, I've seen their trucks drive into the studio in the morning a couple times. Well, so here's... Yeah. So they're here, all over the place. Yeah. Well, well, I, I noticed uh, near us, um, you know, we, we live in an area, like a pedestrian area, where there's a lot of local businesses. And I've noticed in the past number of weeks, a couple of the bins have been replaced... And now there are local waste bins, Ooh, nice. and I and I and I wonder if they're maybe hearing about it on Real Talk. I don't know. I hope that's the case. But you can give Chris or Lauren Labossier a call at seven eight zero two four two ninety seven forty six. They would love to talk trash with you. And by the way, Sam, your email inbox fills as my email inbox fills with submissions for Trash Talk. Trash Talk is going to have. I'm thinking we might move it to Thursdays because we've got a big roundtable coming up on Friday. Trash Talk on Thursdays. This is your opportunity. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's your opportunity to chime in and to get things off your chest, to talk a little trash, to rant and to rave. Uh, you know, the punchier, the shorter, the better, I say. Uh, but we are getting like long form essays and one liners from people that are absolutely livid right now. And I'm thinking that trash talk might have to be an hour long. I, I think yesterday 
I was watching the juniors game and I think I spent an hour and a half reading emails. Yeah. Like it just there it was the the response we had to yesterday's show was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh yeah, it's tough to describe sort of, and I think that it's just picking up steam, which is great. One of the emails that we received, um, let me know if Johnny Infamous chimes in, okay? Because uh, I wanted to make some time here to read this email from Robin, not their real name, uh, but Robin writes in and says, I have, uh, <laughs> I love how they wrote this. I have indulged in your show in various instances. I said, well, thank you very much. And said, I, I found that your guests and your topics uh, provide a great deal of knowledge um, said, I, I, I really, you know, seeing the, the pressure that Albertans have thrusted upon the government to, to, to overturn this decision uh, to not reprimand staff. In other words, the blowback after Jason Kenney said no big deal on January 1st. And then yesterday we saw some action. Uh, we saw Tracy Allard resign as Minister of Municipal Affairs. She's still the MLA in Grand Prairie. And then we saw a couple of the other uh, staff members, uh, uh, Jamie Huckabee, most notably Premier's Chief of Staff, uh, resigning. And then, of course, th there are some duties that some of these other MLAs are resigning, but it's really not a big deal. Um, it's not. And some of you will say, oh, you know, OK, so you call for these things to happen and then they happen and then it's not enough. So when are you ever going to be happy? Uh, you know, let's be clear that, you know, Jeremy Nixon resigning as parliamentary secretary for civil society. Maybe. I mean, kind of not. I mean, it's not, you know, you know, Jason Stefan resigning from the Treasury Board, still the MLA in Red Deer. Uh, you know, Tanya Fur, Pat Rain, Tanya Yao losing their legislature committee responsibilities. I mean, this is they're, what they're losing really is is basically a, a top up on their salaries. That's what they're they're losing. Uh, the biggest top up lost by Tracy Allard, uh, the entrepreneur out of Grand Prairie, owns a bunch of uh, Tim Hortons, but she'll go back to her MLA salary. So, I mean, I think it's more the reputational hit there. Um, heard from a former government minister. Um, I don't know if they wanted this to be uh, on the record with regard. I mean, if you, if you send me a text. And, and you don't say off the record, it kind of is on the record, but we didn't clarify. So I'll read the text, but I'm not going to cite the source except to say that this was a this is a former conservative cabinet minister in the province of Alberta. We really appreciate uh, those of you with political involvement, past political experience chiming into the show. Our understanding of these issues is made more rich by your feedback with us, and we appreciate it. This former minister says this this whole uh, stripping of committee responsibilities for the traveling MLAs, this is no punishment whatsoever, uh, says this former cabinet minister. Uh, it, it used to be, you know, committee appointments meant additional dollars because MLAs were paid for each committee they served on. But that was eliminated after the kerfuffle. You remember this of the no meat committee? Remember that uh, the no meat committee, which was uh, he uh, this uh, former minister, he says, uh, by the way, it was completely fabricated by the Wild Rose Party at the time. Um, is there still that right? There's got to be that that rivalry still with the, the former PCs and the former Wild Rosers that are now united conservatives. But uh, old habits die hard. Right. Former minister says now non cabinet MLAs are paid the same whether they serve on five committees or zero. Uh, so this is not a demotion nor a punishment. Uh, these folks will be paid the same for doing less work says this former minister, with the exception of minister, former Minister Allard. Um, I suspect the premier is counting on most Albertans not knowing this and gaslighting them into thinking that, wow, he took decisive action and really let them feel his wrath, says this former cabinet minister. This is a flogging with a wet noodle at best. So so there you have a perspective from the inside. But back to Robin's email. 
So Robin wrote in to said, you know, seeing this pressure that Albertans have thrust upon the government to overturn this basically a non-decision, it shows that the real force for change is in the hands of the people. And my hope as a paramedic, says Robin, for the community, for my community, is to hopefully incite that same emotion and to enact change. And so Robin has sent this letter that I want to read. Uh, It says, Dear Albertans, I write to you on behalf of my profession as a paramedic and as an Albertan. This is a plea. It is a plea to prioritize paramedics for the vaccine to help us protect our communities. Robin says, I understand that some of our leadership and some of our colleagues in different professions have reached out to government in earnest based on the events of the last year, especially the last few weeks. The only thing that this government seems to respond to is strong pressure from its constituents. So what I want to do is provide knowledge to the behind the scenes element of the life of a paramedic. It's not always the flashy lights. It's not always the high acuity cases that make the news. There's a lot more to what we do that both the public and obviously healthcare leadership isn't aware of. I agree, by the way, right? We, we often, if you think about, think about the language we use, think about what we talk about. Obviously, Albertans very aware right now. We are reminded uh, in, in uh, due to obviously tragic circumstances down in Cal- down in Calgary, the the death uh, of a, a Calgary police sergeant on New Year's Eve while executing a traffic stop. We are reminded of the sacrifice, the, the the risks that law enforcement takes each and every day. We are reminded of what firefighters do all the time, and and it's always exciting. If you're the parent of a young child like I am, you know there's nothing like when you can hear the ladder truck coming from blocks and blocks away, and the siren gets louder and louder, and then the ladder truck zooms by, and every and, you know, and then you throw in the firefighter calendars and this, that, and the other, and, and they'll tell you, they'll tell you, public perception of firefighters is pretty darn good, and we're very grateful for what they do. They are our coiled springs, so to speak. They're ready to snap into action when we need them. But how often do we honestly talk about paramedics? We, if you think about it, of the emergency first-line responders, we don't talk about paramedics as much. We just don't. Back to the email. It says, take just New Year's Eve, okay? Just a few days ago, uh, I worked a 24-hour shift. In that 24-hour shift, we attended a facility that was on a, a COVID-19 outbreak, And we proceeded to escort a a potentially COVID-positive patient for a procedure. Now, during that escort, there's always at least one practitioner bedside to the patient. We need to maintain distance, obviously, to continue to monitor the patient. And rarely is there not at least one practitioner within six feet of the patient. The same shift, we proceeded to also tend to patients at a dedicated shelter for COVID-positive patients. We also proceeded to assist patients in their private residence due to ailments like, like chest pain. We were also in a residence to deliver a newborn baby. All of these contacts within one 24-hour shift. Says, I also work flights. So escorting and treating patients inside an airline, an airplane, it goes to say, obviously, it's, it's not big enough to stand uh, sharing recycled air with the patient for the duration of potentially hour-long flights just feet from one another. Robin says, I'm also a community paramedic. Does Robin ever sleep? I don't know. I'm also a community paramedic, which means that we provide outpatient care in people's homes. These services range from full assessment, IV, antibiotics, blood work, suturing, stitches, you know, 
the primary clients we have for these services are older with many comorbidities. We talked about that yesterday in facilities and in their private homes, as well as cancer patients and the homeless. Now, there are also some of my colleagues who work in clinics alongside nurses and physicians to provide primary care and uh, to small communities, primarily indigenous communities. So what is the point of this quick behind the scenes look? My hope is to share with you how integrated paramedics are when it comes to providing care to the weakest, the sickest, the most vulnerable populations on a daily basis. It's not all trauma and heart attacks. We as a profession have been accustomed to being disrespected by leadership and the culture it perpetuates. And we're aware of the risks and the danger and the stress we put ourselves in when it comes to what we do for a living. But I think I can speak for my colleagues when I say that although although Alberta Healthcare's uh, Alberta Health's decision to exclude paramedics from the initial vaccine discussion and not be included in the role or accounted for as healthcare has caused an ir- irreversible moral blow to all the paramedics in this province. Let me read this. Although Alberta Health's decision to exclude paramedics from the initial vaccine discussion has caused an irreversible moral blow to all the paramedics in this province, our concerns are for Albertans, our fellow Albertans. One of the biggest fears most paramedic practitioners have besides infecting our loved ones in our home is infecting your loved ones in your homes. To not be able to render care due to quarantine after a close exposure or even contraction of the virus itself. We don't need platitudes in the media nor from political mouthpieces. We need the right tools and the protections to do our job safely for our patients and our communities. So, says Robin, signing off as your paramedic. If you care about the safety of your community and the ones you love, please contact your MLA. Call them, email them, tweet at them. I know you can do it. You just did. You just forced this government into accountability. That from Robin, a paramedic and a real talker. Really appreciate that, Robin. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to welcome. Is Lori Adkin ready to go here? It's a pleasure to welcome uh, to the program uh, Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta, Dr. Lori Adkin. Thank you so much for making time for us and a good morning. You're, You're making your Real Talk debut today. Oh, great. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Lori, we, we just read this uh, this email from Robin, a paramedic, talking about essentially life on the ambulance. Here's what the experience looks like, and here's the impact of not feeling support uh, from from the bureaucracy or from politicians. Now, politicians will rightfully say, hey, you know, I'm not sure that how involved we are in deciding when paramedics are going to get the vaccinations here. But Robin made an interesting assertion, said we're appealing to the public to call and email your MLAs and to get on Twitter because you just forced accountability yesterday with the premier of Alberta doubling back and reversing uh, some of the non-punishments that were doled out on January 1st. Is that an accurate assessment, would you say? Is that what happened yesterday with with Jason Kenney and Tracy Allard and the rest? It does seem to be apparent that he only took the actions he did after there was a very significant pushback on social media against his earlier decisions January 1st, when he basically said, I can't take any action because nobody broke a law, etc. Right? So he had uh, a few days later realized that this was a political mistake and decided that somebody would have to be fired. So, yeah, it does seem to have made a difference that people responded um, loudly. 
So we had, uh, you know, the, the details here. I, w- I won't run through them all, but but probably the most significant ones. Tracy Allard resigns from her cabinet position. Um, she will return to regular duties as an MLA at a Grand Prairie. Uh, the chief of staff, Jamie Huckabee, uh, resigns. Uh, Premier accepts his resignation. And then, you know, legislative committee responsibilities essentially surrendered by the rest, which, as we heard from a, a former uh, conservative cabinet minister, said that that's that's really nothing at all, said it's the same amount of money for less work. Um, is this enough? Are, are the, will the people of Alberta's bloodlust be satiated here? Well, I hope that people will remember that uh, the government has been handling the, the crisis uh, rather badly from the beginning, and that this seems to be in part because the cabinet or the premier or both have wanted to avoid antagonizing uh, right-wing libertarians in the province who either constitute uh, some of their electoral base or the donors to the party or because they are ideologically sympathetic to the views of these right-wing libertarians and so they've been quite uh, ambiguous in in the direction they've given they have held back on taking stronger measures to confine uh, the spread of the pandemic. And this has resulted in us having very high rates of infection comparatively. And it's led to a lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion amongst people on what are we actually supposed to do or that the rules don't seem to be consistent. So they're, they, haven't, they haven't managed the whole crisis terribly well. and. You know, again, they seem to be responding to political concerns rather than to public interest, public health concerns primarily. And this is a serious problem. I mean, you have a government because you want the government to serve the public interest and put that first and take advice from experts uh, in different fields, medical, scientific, uh, social policy. And this is a government doesn't seem to run by taking advice or seeking advice from well-informed experts. It seems to run on the basis of ideology on one hand and political instrumentalism on the other. So I hope people won't forget that there's a bigger picture here. And I think in my view that the COVID pandemic is an example of a bigger approach to government and and to dealing with uh, the public interest. And it isn't a one-off type of uh, event or issue. It's, It's connected to everything else they've been doing. Uh, Dr. Adkin, we have a, a, a question of the week that we push out every week in partnership with Y Station, and, and we're able to drop in and, and take a look at what people are saying. Uh, more than 600 people now have, have participated. We're hoping to have 1,000 by the end of the week. Uh, you can go to ryanjesperson.com. It's right on the top bar, question of the week. And I, and I want to read you, I mean, some, some of the early stats here, you know, as we said, about 600 respondents here. Uh, interesting, 69% uh, of people, when, when we asked, what would you like to see happen to ministers, MLAs, and politicians? Political staff who decided to vacation internationally this holiday season against public health advice and common sense. Sixty nine percent have selected they should resign in disgrace. Sixty nine percent wanting a resignation. Forty seven percent suggest the politicians should have to personally speak to people who have been impacted by covid. But where the real light shines is when we say let her rip. Tell us how you feel. 
about this whole vacation scandal. And then there's just a blinking cursor and a bunch of open room. And that's when Real Talk viewers and listeners have started to tell us really how they feel. Like one says it's scary where the government has taken us. This is just an ugly cake topper. I wish I could say I'm surprised, but the premier has always been arrogant and entitled. I'm embarrassed about this. I'm proud of being from Alberta. In my life travels internationally across Canada, I always have been. Now I just have to agree when shots are taken at our reputation, it needs to change. Pretty strong words about somebody who says I'm a proud Albertan, but I'm not proud about this right now. How indicative do you think that is of where the general population's at? Uh, well, I mean, for the first time in a while, it seems to be that a lot of people sort of on the center right are really unhappy with this government. They're starting to see a pattern, I think, of uh, very authoritarian behavior. I, I've written about this earlier, but really there are some days when you wonder if the Jason Kenney government believes that, uh, you know, government by divine right was restored to the United Conservatives on in April 2019. Um, you know, they, they act as if... Uh, following this four-year accident with the NDP, with the sort of experiment with the Republic, the monarchy has been restored, you know? Uh, and th this is just the pattern we've seen of, of arrogance. Uh, they are, they seem to be punch drunk with having a majority government and the idea that somehow natural rule has been returned to Alberta and they can do whatever they like. So we see this in terms of legislation they've passed, um, the kinds of consultation they have not done, um, the, the very uh, superficial and self-serving types of consultations that they have undertaken. Um, and, you know, generally there's a whole string of actions to kind of repress or, or discourage uh, civil society activism, uh, to withdraw resources from civil society and trade unions and uh, to basically restore a kind of rule by a corporate class. Uh, they, they are, you know, their policies are transferring wealth from the public to corporate executives and, uh, and shareholders. And they are at the same time telling us that there's this massive deficit and we all have to deal with austerity policies and they're taking away public goods. You know, so, you know, this is not a government that uh, seems to be really concerned with what most of us would say is the public interest and not even open to considering the kinds of alternatives in terms of fiscal policy um, or public consultation that are certainly available to them. So, so let me ask you this. So yesterday we wanted we said, I mean, I, I could I can go all I want. I mean, go for for hours on reading feedback from people that are angry and reflecting that anger. But 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 ultimately we have to say, OK, what do we do with this? How do we channel this? It's unhealthy to hang on to this. And and how do we impact change? Some people have just been awoken politically. I know because they're telling us that some people have said I've never even watched or listened to a talk show like this before, but I need to figure out what can I do? So I, I provided some of my solutions yesterday, which seem quite obvious. But, you know, I mean, reach out to your MLA, call, demand a call back, write a letter, look into political parties you may not have looked into before, consider volunteering, consider making a political donation. I mean, these are ways to get involved in your community. What would be your advice along the same lines for people that are saying, hell no, this is not acceptable politicking in my world or in any world? 
Mm, good points. Well, you know, I am sympathetic to the, the resign Kenny hashtag in that campaign, but I think as others have pointed out, the reality is that uh, Kenny is not going to resign. Uh, he's not going to call an early election because um, many Albertans are furious with the government. He's going to continue until 2023. And so we have to think a little bit more medium term around how do we make sure that this doesn't revert to being a one-party dominant state? How do we make sure that we at least have a two-party system, political system here, and the possibility that a viable alternative to this government can be elected? And of course, that immediately tells you that, that there are ways of supporting um, civil society organizations that are doing research and pushing policy alternatives, and there are ways of supporting opposition parties uh, to help them have strong footing for the municipal and provincial elections that are ahead of us. Um, and they need that support in order to develop strong policy platforms and succeed in elections. And they are up against an even harder playing, tougher playing field in the next rounds because of the types of measures that the, the UCP has introduced. So the only thing we can do is kind of get ourselves organized as citizens to participate in, in some forms of collective action uh, that will help to um, change the government in 2023. Um, we can't, I don't think we can, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see how, uh, I don't see the likelihood of Jason Kenney giving up his majority government two years into his term. Uh, I think he's going to hang on and he's going to hope that Albertans will have forgotten the COVID crisis uh, handling by 2023. And I, and I would suggest, uh, Dr. Adkin, that, that I think that there is enough time for Albertans to forget about this or or at least for it for the blow to be lessened, if you will. We've seen politicians that that stick around, find some way to to repair their reputation, repair the way that the public feels about them. Um, sometimes it takes time. Uh, sometimes it, it takes, uh, I, I think, investing in 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 programs or, or, you know, we've always seen this, you know, before the writ drops, uh, obviously, the governing parties throw a lot of money into communities where they hope to make an impact and potentially that's one way uh, the UCP does this. Maybe it's a successful vaccine rollout that they point to. We will see and time will tell. We teed up a question yesterday that that's not a new question by any stretch, but I want to ask you this before we thank you for your time. We talked to Jackie Fenske, the interim leader of the Alberta party, about whether or not this could mean a bump up for that that party that saw 170,000 votes. I mean, for reference purposes, the NDP saw about 600,000 the United Conservatives just over a million last election. So 170,000 is not small potatoes, but still zero seats. Uh, you know, could this benefit the Alberta party in any way? Uh, got some blowback from strong NDP supporters that said, what the hell are you doing? Um, all you're going to do is split the vote of progressives and give the United Conservatives another channel. Then you had people that suggested that, hey, listen, the Alberta party, a strong Alberta party could also take votes from from United Conservative voters uh, if they're perceived to be a center or a center right party. And then people are talking about the Western independence movement and, and you know, what's going to happen with the, the skeleton of the Alberta Liberal Party. I mean, what does the political landscape look like in Alberta, do you think? Again, I'm asking you all these unfair questions more than two years out. But what does the landscape look like two years from now? Uh, well, you know, a, a lot depends on on whether or not the UCP vote will or can be split. Mm -hmm. 
again, of course, as you've already pointed out, some of that vote might actually go to the Alberta party, some might go to the NDP, some might go to the Western, what do they call themselves, the Maverick? Yeah, it's, tough to, it's tough to keep track, and I mean right. no disrespect, it's just it, there, there's constant rebranding. They're constantly rebranding, yes. Um, so it, it is possible that there will be more competition for the right vote uh, next time around. It's actually more also possibility it could be competition for the centre-left vote next time around, depending on what the Greens do and, and, uh, and the Alberta party, the direction it takes. Um, so, you know, I don't know electorally. It, it's just that I see... Uh, that it's really important for us to try to sustain the places in civil society, if you don't mind me using that word, but, you know, where um, where um, there is a capacity for organizing and developing alternative policies. And uh, there are a lot of non-governmental, not a lot, but there are some non-governmental organizations that will really need public support to keep playing that role. And it's really important to democracy that we have these organizations playing this role, developing policy that governments can adopt, that we have alternative ideas uh, circulating in this province so that this party can establish um, a very strong kind of ideological hegemony uh, around the possibility of transition away from fossil fuels. Why do we need uh, coal mines on the Eastern slope? Do we have alternatives for economic diversification that are ecologically sustainable? I mean, we have to have these alternatives for people to turn to and to mobilize around. And it's important that that these organizations have support as well. Otherwise, two years from now, there won't be any effective opposition to this party. Uh, and, it, and it concerns me a lot, especially in an environment where... Uh, apart from your show and a few others, you know, really the media is sewn up here. We all of our daily papers, our tabloids are owned by Post Media, you know, with a few small exceptions. We have some independent media, but where are people hearing messages about policy and what's politically possible? Um, the NDP doesn't have huge resources for doing this, and um, you know, if most people are listening to commercial radio and television and reading post media, they are getting messages that are almost identical to those of the UCP. And this is this is what underpins the situation, is what I'm trying to say, is that the political parties are one thing, elections are one thing, but democracy is a lot bigger than that. Well said, uh, Dr. Lori Adkin, uh, a professor of political science at the University of Alberta. Really appreciate your, your measured analysis of this, and, and thanks for making yourself available on this Tuesday morning. Oh, it's a pleasure. Ask me back. Yeah, sure will. You can follow uh, Professor Adkin, obviously, on Twitter, just like all the other guests. And, of course, we release that every morning. I usually tweet around, you know, 8.15 or so uh, when the guests are coming up on the show. So really appreciate that. Um, we're going to be, in a moment, uh, taking a, a, a hard turn toward a different subject. And I'm really looking forward to what I think is going to be a fascinating conversation on, on subject matter that, I'm going to be honest, I don't know a ton about. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Canada's sex trade and we're going to be talking. So, so in past I've interviewed, um, 
I've interviewed people that are fighting for uh, changes in legislation in Canada uh, to have uh, barriers removed. In other words, so um, and, and I've, I've heard compelling arguments for people saying we need to legalize the sex trade, completely treat it like any other business, uh, bring in Alberta Health Services, uh, you know, have the, have Health Canada play a role, uh, make sure these businesses are paying taxes, make sure that these um, uh, sex workers and, and, and if there's a, a preferred nomenclature, let me know. I don't think that that's an offensive phrase. We'll ask our next guest, uh, but make sure that they're protected and overseen and supervised and, and that there's, you know, I mean, all of these things, it's, it's a it's a, a really big uh, conversation to have but our next guest coming up uh is actually a sex trade abolitionist one that has worked uh in the field so to speak and and has has obviously had i'm just going to go to the news first sam um but has has obviously uh had a, a, a bit of a, a change in her perspective and we're going to find out why uh so i'm looking forward to that conversation uh, coming up that's coming up in just a little bit uh right now wanted to remind you how excited we are to be partnering with the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park and they reached out to us over the new year's break and said uh hey guys that whole Christmas log fire sale that we did, the 50% off the Christmas, it was wildly successful. And so here's the thing, real talkers, you show up and, well, you end up creating, manifesting a pretty plum situation for yourselves. Well, for myself included. Because now that the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road know that real talkers are dead serious about their Dairy Queen, they said, well, why don't we do another promo? So here's the deal. You visit one of those six Dairy Queen locations and you're going to be able to tap into the buy one, get one Dilly Bar free sale. Now, not one Dilly Bar, one box of them. That's right. They come in boxes of six, as if I had to tell you that. They come in boxes of six. You buy one box of six. You get the second box completely free. And I love this. Mark reached out to me, one of the owners. It's Mike and Mark, just a couple of beauties. Uh, and, And he said, you can let them know there's no limit on how many you can buy at a time, but it is worth mentioning it's while quantities last, which means they're preparing for somebody to come in there and buy hundreds of these things. And no one would blame you. And when I said this next, uh, when I made this next note yesterday, a few of you went absolutely nuts in the best way when you found out that they now have dairy-free dilly bars. Yeah, that's right. Dairy-free Dilly Bars, ladies and gentlemen, at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Also pretty excited to be partnered up with Westworld Computers. We finally moved my MacBook Pro into the frame here. Sam, we're showing it off a little. We wanted to show off a little more hardware here on my end, on my end of the table. And then we can take camera four and we can show off your desktop setup. You got that brand new iMac. Is that thing purring? It was. Do computers purr? Well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's like it's, it's a metaphorical. Okay, uh, metaphorically, before I talk about horses in a Westworld computer in a way that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because what did we um, say earlier? Let's not go. Uh, there. You said it was a Mustang stallion, and everyone went, "That's not a thing." I, I told you, I don't. I like horses. I don't know them. <laughs> you, you, you teed up me for a horse metaphor, and I couldn't deliver. All right. Um, purring or not, this computer is fantastic. You know what I'm. You know what I'm realizing though. That's really kind of sad. Is that the, the kids these days? Uh, they're going to grow up and they're not going to have any understanding. Um, they're not going to have any understanding. If you say like that, baby purrs. I mean, I think of like. You know, a guy on my street has a, I think it's a 69, 67, 69 GTO. Like, it's just a beautiful, when he when he fires it up, it purrs. It like, well, it, it, it growls, it barks, and then it purrs. Oh, I know what you mean. A well-idling engine. It is a, it is a beautifully idling engine. 
Um, and then, the, and then there's that sound of, of like the. I mean, that's a tip to their mechanic more than anything. Well, yeah, you know? maybe even yeah. him because he turns yeah. wrenches on it. But then, but then there's. You know, my, I, I think back to high school. My buddy Tim had a nice Chevy Nova. He built it with his dad, and he used to. He'd put like five bucks on the dash and say it's yours if you can grab it, and then he'd just hammer on it, and blah, the V8 would go. And I mean, it was just like the coolest move. When you're 17, stuff like that resonates with you. <laughs> When you're 43, stuff like that resonates. Who am I kidding? But kids these days, they're going to grow up with the with the, uh, the I mean the amazing technology, and they're going to be driving Teslas and all the other electronic vehicles, and and all the big automakers are pushing them out. They're not going to understand. My understanding is that, and I know that those real talkers with Teslas, you can tell me if this is true or not. Don't they actually have in cabin noise? You can you can set it. So when you hammer on the gas, which is not the gas. When it's you have more, it's higher torque than gas. I mean, electric engines are crazy. They're fast as hell. Oh, I know. A, a, a buddy of mine, I, I, he won't mind me mentioning Adam O'Brien, who owns Bitcoin. Well, the, the title sponsor of this show has a, one of these unbelievable. I think it's the Model X. If you know Tesla, you know. And we've ridden. It's it's like as fast as a street bike. Yeah. Like it's, it's like spaceship. zero to sixty in like three seconds. Like it's they're they're insane. So but there's no. But they're they're not like. Wah! And I, I would kind of miss that. So, so tell me, Jespo, um, the people that love all this cool new tech that we're talking about, where should they go to get their Apple products? Yeah, I was just going to say, Daryl and the team at Westworld are going to go. Are, were you guys planning on making this about computers at any point, or or talking about where people can find us on Mayfield Road and the fact that we've been family owned for forty years, and that we're your home for the new iMac, like the one Sam has, and MacBook Pros, and iPads, and iPhones, and. All the other gadgets that everybody... I just got... Did it, Did you... Have you noticed I got these... Uh, I got these sexy little numbers from Santa. The AirPods. They've got AirPods at Westworld too. Santa got me these ones. But boy, oh boy, are those game changers. Find them at Westworld Computers. The music timed out beautifully. I, yeah, I, that was, I, well, that was the second time through. Wayne, I need longer ad music if we're going to keep doing that. No, I... I typically, <laughs> we try to keep our ads under four minutes. But sometimes we end up talking about things totally unrelated to the, the client and uh, and they just patiently wait for us to get back to talking about their business. So that it was a four minute in a way shout out to Westworld Computers and we're grateful for their partnership. <laughs> All right. Um, OK, I, I'm going to I'm going to come into this uh, conversation with with full disclosure that that I'm here to learn about this. And, and I hope that you'll join me in this journey. We will no doubt have audience members that are more in the know about the sex trade uh, from a number of, of different angles, I'm sure. Um, Andrea Heinz is a sex trade abolitionist, and we're going to find out what that means. With lived experience, uh, she spent seven years in Edmonton's licensed commercial sex trade. For four of those years, she was the owner of a licensed massage parlor. But for the last eight years, Andrea has worked as an activist and victim advocate, assisting people working through the criminal justice system trying to testify against exploiters. Andrea, it is a real pleasure to welcome you to Real Talk today. Thanks for making time for us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Like so many other Edmontonians, I'm a huge fan of all of your work that you do and uh, I'm just happy to be here. So well, we appreciate you. it. I, I, I want to, and I said, I want to approach this, this conversation in a, in a spirit of learning and understanding. I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know a lot about, um, like I said, I've had some, I've uh, interviewed in past uh, some people that have, have really campaigned to have, uh, the sex trade, and I'm probably speaking in, in too broadly, uh, too broad of terms here, but they, you know they want the sex trade legalized. They say that it'll it'll be more safe for for people that are earning their living in this way. That it'll it'll be more uh, uh, you know safe from a public health standpoint, et cetera. Um, 
if I understand correctly, you're kind of advocating for quite the opposite. You'd like to see it shut down. Am I correct? I don't know if shut down is the appropriate word because that is a very uh, drastic, you know, like end it now type thing. And I, I believe with the sex trade, we can't realistically do that. I think what I believe in is the natural phase out and a reduction in sex trade activity. So it's definitely a process, um, not a one-off where we can just shutter all businesses and put people on the streets and struggling financially and trying to wonder how they're going to pay their bills and everything else. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's a, a journey for sure. Okay. Um, Sam's going to work with you, Andrea, to get your video back. We want to make sure that we can see you. Um, I, I, now, we want to get into this from a number of, of different angles uh, and really, I think, come to a, a full understanding of what the issues are here at play. But first, why don't we get to know you a little bit? So as mentioned, you, you know, you have lived experience here. Your life story, what led to your involvement in the sex trade? What led to your road out? And then how did you get to the point now where you're you're a published scholar? I mean, you, you hold a diploma in correctional services. You're working uh, toward a, a BA in governance law and management. You're, you're happily married with three kids. I mean, your, your life is, has really moved into a, a, a really specific direction with a lot of intent. Uh, how did your journey come about? Well, how much time do you have? You got lots. <laughs> Cause, uh, yeah, I think like everybody else uh, who ends up in the sex trade, it's a very long story. And um, it's typically not just a, a singular incident that leads people there. And it definitely wasn't with me. Um, but we always hear these narratives of people, you know, being in a situation of childhood sexual abuse or very severe trauma, um, economic, you know, destitution. And for some people, it's one of those things or it's a multitude of many of those things or, um, you know, it, it really depends on each person. So for me, it was primarily just economic destitution and struggling to transition from, you know, teenage years and uh, entering into young adulthood and, and going on my own and having $60,000 worth of commercial credit card debt and abusive relationships with men who were very I'll tell you what, Andrea, we're having a, we're having a bit of a Sam, if you can just bring the audio down, Sam, Andrea, Sam's going to work with you. Our apologies. Just uh, we're, we're having an issue with the connection here. So we want to make sure uh, that we can get the connection as, as strong as humanly possible. We're talking to Andrea Heinz. Uh, if you're listening live to us this morning on uh, Mixler or or if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, you can follow her on Twitter and a fascinating follow. It's Heinz site 2020 H E I N Z site 2020. She talks about things like toxic feminism says that's an oxymoron uh, and gets into why that's the case she's she tweets out things like apologies to families uh, which is really really interesting her message to other women and we want to get into this as, as soon as we can get this uh, interview rocking and rolling again we're also interested in your comments on this because i know that this is the type of subject where some people that are watching right now that are participating in this uh, conversation uh, from a viewing standpoint will have lived experience here as well. And I'm curious to know exactly where you land on this subject matter, how you feel about it. Like I said, I've spoken with people in past that have advocated for uh, more robust protections for sex trade workers. And, and a lot of people, it's not unlike, and I, and I, and I want to be careful if I, if I sort of draw a direct line between these 
these two issues of, of, of ethics and governance and legislation. Uh, but when you talk to people like we have on this show, like Nathaniel Erskine Smith, the member of parliament, about decriminalizing drugs in Canada, uh, the argument is from a lot of, uh, of people, whether they're elected officials, public health officials or others, We'll say that if you if you if you remove the, the, the criminal justice implications of something like drug use, uh, you can then provide essentially a more robust health care net for people. You 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 stop perpetuating some of the problems here with regards to, you know, people uh, who use drugs being incarcerated, the incarceration leading back to their financial destitution, leading back to their involvement in the drug game, etc. We've had those conversations. So they'll argue that if you decriminalize or legalize something, it removes some of the harmful elements and and allows you to move forward uh, based on science, based on evidence. Now, it's a progressive point of view, to be sure. And it's one I think that applies here, too, in in part with this conversation. Andrea Heinz, our guest, I, I think we've sorted out the connection so andrea it's good to have you back um i want to make sure that we, we don't kind of lose track of where we were um as sam was sorting out your wi-fi i had mentioned to people that that on twitter uh it, it's really fascinating to see uh some of the some of the thoughts you put out there um some of the initiatives that you champion and, and i noted a while back you, you you had tweeted essentially an apology it was an apology to women, like like the wives, you know, the partners, the girlfriends, the daughters of of some of your former clients. It was a very personal message, um, and I was wondering if you could share that perspective with us. I think it'll provide some insight, maybe into part of what drives you today. Sure, um, that was really, I think, one of the larger turning points for me in starting to view my sex trade participation differently was my impact on other women. Because for as long as I can remember, I've been a feminist, even as a young girl, and always believed in gender equality. And I I think it's very easy to get sucked into that narrative that the sex trade empowers women and it allows us to have bodily autonomy and agency over our choices and brings us up to par with men socially, economically. But I just didn't really observe that in my experience more, more often than not. I did see, of course, you know, a few people that that was their story, but by large, it, it really wasn't. And I started to see the ripple effect that I was having on individuals in the sex trade. And that's not just other women, um, but it, it was also men too. So I was really starting to see how it was economically, you know, um, just, yeah, just hurting people all around economically, financially, mentally, emotionally, um, I just couldn't keep doing it anymore. So it was a really big eye opener to really start to see the sex trade differently than I always had because everything that I'd always seen and and believed was what, you know, pop culture had taught me, which was that it was, you know, your choice and that it was empowering and that no one should say any differently. So whenever you start to finally feel a little bit differently, you, you do feel out of sorts, you know, in that sea of that narrative. Definitely. Brandon's watching and he says, well, well, how about we better support and fund and regulate the sex trade that is never going away? He says, protect the workers. Pushing it underground is worse. Uh, I will note that, you know, when people talk about the world's oldest profession, they're talking about typically the sex trade. Uh, so, so Brandon, to a certain degree, is right when he says it's never going away. How would you respond to that? You know, on my Twitter, I actually made a post about that. And I said, people who believe that the sex trade is inevitable are ultimately those who cement it as such. Because it's the belief that people can't change, that people aren't able to evolve, 
that we can't look at these archaic practices in a new light, in a new context, and see them for what they really are and um, bring them into the modern day, so to speak. So when people say, you know, it's the oldest profession, I don't know if it is. I would argue maybe it's the oldest oppression because women have for so long been economically and socially marginalized that trading sex has been one of our only ways to survive in a world where, you know, really men are, are unfortunately still prioritized over women collectively. So um, I do understand that narrative. I, I do agree in some degree of harm reduction, but I think people tend to get stuck in harm reduction and they don't try to wor- move towards harm elimination, which I think really needs to be the ultimate end goal when we're talking about sexual exploitation. I've never heard that before. The world's oldest oppression. That's that's certainly a powerful statement. So so people will sit here and say we never want to be. Um, I always want to be glass half full as opposed to glass half empty. Um, but a realist might suggest, and it and it's it's heartbreaking. Let's be honest. Uh, the reality that that many people, um, and and it's certainly not exclusively women. Um, uh, people along the gender spectrum, for that matter, certainly and and. Um, but I would imagine that for the most part, demographically speaking, the majority would be women uh, that might find themselves in, in positions of. Um, and again, I want to be careful how I'm even framing this narrative, Andrew, because I don't know. I'm, I'm seeing this as, as a person on the outside and I stand to be corrected if necessary. But but people that may see themselves as having no other option or people that may find themselves in, in a position of, of desperation and they're they're doing whatever they can. Uh, whether it's to, to make it through the day, whether it's to f- feed a family, whether it's to, 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 to be able to, to feed an addiction, whatever the case may be. And again, I don't want to characterize everybody. Every individual is different. and has their own story. Uh, but for us to say, well, you know, you can simply walk away or you can simply choose a different life or you can you can take a different path or whatever might be described by some people as a bit of a Pollyanna approach to this. You'd need social supports. You'd need more funding. We'd need realistic, tangible, executable steps uh, to provide people a way out, assuming they wanted a way out. So, so what's the solution? What does that look like? Well, I think that's a million dollar question right there, Ryan, for sure. Um, I do agree. And that's why I, I really have a hard time with this whole like instantly you know, shutter businesses, close everything, because like you said, there are a lot of people in precarious situations that are relying on sex trade income to sustain their livelihoods and that of their children as well. Um, Or like you said, addictions for me, post-secondary education, you know, my livelihood as well. Um, But I think that really speaks to how we're falling short as a society to support our most marginalized people. And, And I think that can be said for so many different diverse social issues. So it's really frustrating whenever people kind of say, well, you know, it's just inevitable. It's just going to happen. We just have to go with the flow and accept that that's what it is. You know, have, have we not seen in history where people have tried to do better and have tried to move society forward and have tried to just make those improvements? And why do we feel like we can't do that with sex, you know, as well, commercialized sex? Um, I, I think that we can. I really do. I see a lot of great work happening locally, especially here in Edmonton with nonprofits, with advocates, um, you know, even just everyday people, like, for example, Revolution Engine, the, the t-shirt I'm wearing, they're just a local band who makes music and is spreading a message about, you know, the integrity of, of the intrinsic value of the human being. And, you know, what are we worth? Are we worth being commoditized and capitalized right down to our most intimate exchange that we have to offer somebody at the very core of ourselves? And I would argue that we aren't. So it, it really comes down to, 
I think, a Desmond Tutu uh, quote that I really like, which is, you know, we have to stop pulling people out of the river. We have to go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. And that's definitely a long journey. You know, it's not a quick fix. It, it will take a lot of time. It will take a lot of resources, a lot of great minds coming together, a lot of, you know, social investment, real dollars put into that. And unfortunately, we, we don't see that in a lot of things that are particularly impactful in women's lives. So we still have, you know, the wage gap. We still have women, you know, being funneled into part-time employment, casual opportunities, all those types of things where it's really just kind of leading us to go sell sex. And unfortunately, you know, we, we do know that that is typically to the male benefit as well for their sexual enjoyment. So there's really sometimes a, a battle to try to say, like, can we not do better by women without people thinking that you are anti-man or you know, going against somebody or you're just an angry, raging feminist. And, right. You know, I think that's frustrating. Definitely a lot of the time. Andrea, let me just let me just read. I just want to read a bunch of the comments from people that are watching this interview live. Um, it, you can pick and choose which one you respond to. I just want to uh, get a good idea of, of what our viewers are, are thinking about what we're talking about. Judy is watching and she says maybe if Canadians had guaranteed income, uh, maybe people wouldn't be forced into the sex trade to survive. Um, Terry says, I want to hear more about changing material conditions and less about individual attitudes. Heather says the sex trade is ultimately about power. Sandra says harm elimination. I like that. Uh, Kim, uh, your comment, Andrea, about the world's oldest oppression really resonated with her. She said that's amazing. Michelle is watching and she says it's it's only the world's oldest profession because we allow it and accept it uh, to be what it is. We allow strip clubs, um, but we have like mass public arguments about VLTs. That, that's garbage. Um, Scott makes an interesting point. Let me ask you about this, because there, there are some storylines. Um, the the I, I'm, I'm pretty sure my understanding is it's the world's biggest pornography website Pornhub uh, recently pulled down a bunch of videos um, in an effort I think they, now it obviously was probably a PR move but in an effort they said to remove videos that had the potential of being exploitive uh, videos um, I, I was reading that headline and Scott says you know take a look at the rise of only fans sites uh, during this recession which is also really interesting the only fans idea which um, essentially allows people to create kind of their own online service for sharing pictures and videos and people have a a monthly subscription to the only fans and these are these are people i mean probably the most notable story of only fans i don't have the, the 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 exact information in front of me but there was that um health i think she was a paramedic uh down in, in like new york state or something like that uh alexandra ocasio-cortez had her back a little bit because she was being uh ripped by the new york post that said look at this paramedic you know, she's got her only fan. You know, she's sharing nudes in her off hours. She's got, you know, she's on the ambulance, but she's sharing nudes on OnlyFans. And the argument was made, I think, a pretty compelling one by AOC that said the real headline here is that our healthcare workers are having to work two jobs to survive. I mean, that's really the only story here. But the rise of OnlyFans is also kind of interesting. I mean, there are a lot of things to consider here as part of this conversation. Definitely. Like with the pandemic, you know, it, it's kind of this weird dichotomy because in some ways we know that, you know, being in an economically precarious situation is a major driver to enter the sex trade. But ironically, somewhat with this pandemic, it's also a big driver for a lot of people to want to exit the sex trade because it's a, a public health issue. So we're starting to see, you know, this really fast exchange in and out of the industry, people that are desperate to get in because they're just desperate to, like you said, pay their bills and just survive and try to get through this. 
when, you know, so many people are struggling and then we have others that are just saying, I, I can't keep doing it. I'm terrified to go to work. You know, all the people that are coming to see me are asking for more and more services because they know that so many of us are struggling and they're asking to kiss me. They're asking to do, you know, very unprotected sexual acts that were never part of my, my services prior. And I, I just don't know how to deal with that. And I, emotionally it's taking too much from me. It's impacting me physically, mentally, and I just have to get out. But then again, where do you go? So it's definitely a hard conversation. I think, you know, many years ago, it was a little bit of an easier conversation because we didn't have the added layer of coronavirus. So it definitely makes it tough. And then of course, there are the people, the third party profiteers that are looking to capitalize on that uh, desperation by so many people. And OnlyFans is definitely one of those. And, you know, the owner there, just a, a young guy, wealthy guy who decided to start it up is taking 20% of a profit from every single person that posts on there. So, you know, nobody, I think whenever they're running these businesses is doing it with the intent to just try to really help people. It's always about that bottom line with the dollars. And that therein comes the danger whenever you try to capitalize human sexuality as to how can we ensure that we are not exploiting people and how can we ensure that every single person that uploads content is actually there by their full fruition and by their choice. And for me, I just, I, I, I can't see it. I know that there are those people definitely I've met them, but I don't really believe from everyone that I have met and everything that I've read and all the exposure I've had over 15 years that that is reflective and representative of the vast majority of people that are in the sex trade. Are you so really what we're doing is really Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to step on your toes there, Andrea. My apologies. Let me, let me just ask you, do, are you still in, um, like, I would imagine you've probably faced your fair share of criticism. I, I would imagine that that based on what I've seen with regards to, to public debate around this, that that people would probably accuse you. Some people would accuse you of being an anti-feminist based on, on your position here. Um, you know, are, are you still in contact with people that, that you used to work alongside, perhaps people you used to employ? Maybe you've left those relationships behind. I don't know. But if so, uh, what are people saying to you? People that work in the sex trade or that advocate for different, you know, perhaps more protections around the sex trade, but not not the abolishment of it. There's a really, really vast spectrum of people who sell sex. So I, I get really angry when people try to pigeonhole me as someone who's, like you said, like anti-feminist or thinking that. I don't see the bigger picture because I absolutely do. And for a very you know, long time of selling sex myself, I was very full decriminalized minded as well, where I believe that it was a labor issue, that it all came down to just how we regulate and how we address it. And over time, I, I really started to see it differently as a issue of violence against women. And it took me many, many years to come to that. And it was clouded definitely because that was my source of income. And I was surrounded by people that that was their source of income. And nobody wants to feel like a victim. Everyone wants to feel empowered about, you know, with what they do. So no one would sit on the couch in the staff rooms of the brothels and be like, oh, I hate my life. You know, I wish I was doing something different because it doesn't make it easy to go to, to your place of employment and do that every single day then. So I definitely have kept in touch with a lot of people that are still actively selling sex. And some of them, I, I consider them good friends of mine. They respect that I see the industry differently. I respect that they see it differently. And we can find that commonality, but I've lost a, a vast number of friendships definitely with my position now for the people that are very black and white and just can't um, piece together that I've become, I guess, somebody different or that I see things differently. But I did write a paper that was published by Dignity Journal in the fall of 2020. 
and it's called On Exiting from Commercial Sexual Exploitation. And it included insights from 12 women that I used to know, um, still know, I should say, that I operated alongside that, um, you know, just were licensed just like me in the city of Edmonton. And uh, every single one of them, every single woman that ever worked for me or, or again, operated underneath me, um, they've all become sex trade or sex work defectors. They don't support the ideology anymore. They see it differently. Now that they've been removed from it financially, they can look at it with different eyes, if you will. And every single one of them, I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I, you know, moved the abuse that you were experiencing at another location to my brothel, thinking that I was somehow doing you a favor or that I was improving your your operating conditions. And that was also another way that it kind of woke me up, so to speak, that it's not about the conditions because that was really the um, the motive for me to create that brothel was to try to help women like myself who were operating under other people and had very limited agency and control over who we saw, what services we did, what we charged the customers, you know, if we could turn them away. Um, there, it, It's a business. At the end of the day, it's a business, right? And that's what we always have to remember is it's not what we would say is normal sexuality where there's that mutuality of desire and where it's two people coming together on equal footing at the beginning, it's, it's typically an impoverished woman to some degree or a marginalized woman and a man with money. And, you know, there was men that were 70 years my senior that I was sexually servicing. And it, it was very traumatic. It, I still live with trauma and I've been exited for eight years and I'm, I'm getting better every day. But it, it, I don't know if it ever fully goes away. And I think that those are the conversations that we forget to have with people is that honest, frank conversation. I don't know if I should. I don't know if I should even ask this question, but I'm 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 very interested in what you just said. I mean that maybe that's something that we haven't that that some people outside of this wouldn't even think of, and that's the trauma. So it's it should be so obvious. Um, but you talk about the traumatic experiences that you were subjected to, or that you subjected yourself to, or that came with the territory, however you would phrase it. But what an interesting angle. I mean, when you talk about supports. And when you talk about exit avenues or opportunities, um, mental health counseling and, and health services would obviously have to be a big part of that. Uh, I noticed when I read some of the comments earlier, when I talked about uh, a guaranteed income, I noticed you like you like physically responded to that. Um, Charlotte followed up and said, uh, this is a really interesting conversation. Charlotte says, I wonder if a, if a UBI, if a universal basic income uh, given to every Canadian, regardless of income stream, would help address the issues that Andrea has highlighted. Uh, is that part of your advocacy? I mean, do you address that? I try to, you know, talking about sexual exploitation, it is the layers of the onion. Like, honestly, I could talk to you for probably about two weeks straight with just a nap and a drink and a bathroom break in between. And, yeah. and I would just keep going and going because it is by far the most complex social issue, in my opinion. And it's very challenging to get people to really, really understand the nuance to it because they just look at it. So um, matter of factly and just very superficially, like, well, people want to sell sex. They say they like doing it. Who am I to tell them not to? Yeah. And they can't see that yeah. it involves race issues. It, it involves class issues. It involves gender issues. And there's that intersectionality of all those things that really create this perfect storm. And then that, you know, also is impacted based on the economy and, you know, geographical location, culture it's it's really like I said it's taken me 15 years to feel like I kind of get the bigger picture and 
I always feel very awkward when people will call me an expert on this subject because I, I truthfully don't know if anyone ever fully becomes an expert on it because it's, it's just that complex. Um, but I definitely think that universal basic income is step one. That's where we have to start because, you know, it really, this is an economic activity. It's not something that people do for fun. Um, whether people have fun selling sex and that's their, they're that demographic, that's a different story, but it's always money that are, you know, that's the driver that's bringing people to this doorstep of the brothels and the escort agencies. So that's step one where we have to, to address that. And I think if we start doing that, we will start to see a natural shrinkage of the sex trade economy. And I think whenever we see that shrinkage, we will also see a lot of people who are being victimized being removed from that sex trade. So, you know, we do hear from both sides, whether you're fully decriminalized minded or if you are an abolitionist like myself, that we all universally want the same thing. And that's for people who do not want to be in the sex trade to have opportunities to exit the sex trade. So, you know, I do commend the other side, even though they probably hate me. I know a lot of them do. Um, I, I really commend that they see it the same way too, that no one should be selling sex who doesn't want to be. So really we have to create those avenues for people. And I, I try to champion that, but I think, you know, that's also a conversation that I'm really not that privy to, um, you know, as much as say an economic minded person is. So I, I try to just, you know, share my story and kind of just give people an insight and they can kind of take it and run with it because I know that, reading the writing of exited women was really what helped to kind of have me look at my situation a little bit differently and ask myself, like, what am I really doing to myself? Is this what matters to me? Is this what I feel is helpful to society and to my community and the families and everybody else? So it's, yeah, it's, it's super complex, but I think definitely money, money is the, the bottom line. And then having those supports accessible to people. So that whenever they do exit, there is an opportunity to heal in Edmonton, there's no counseling, not a single dollar that is put forth to people who are selling sex. And we know that so many of us are leaving with trauma and really counseling and income are the two things that people say that they need the most. Let me make an obvious statement. Um, you're, you're, as mentioned, a happily married mother of three. Uh, boy, would I ever imagine that your life experience and your perspective to this point will 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 infuse itself into the perspectives that you pass along to your kids in this regard. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that your kids are probably pretty young at this point. I don't know much about you personally, Andrea, but I'm assuming they're pretty young kids. But how, how does your life experience, your lived experience to this point, how do you think that that will influence or is influencing your parenting and the perspectives that you share? Well, um, you're definitely right. My kids are very young. I have a six-year-old son. I have a four-year-old son with special needs. And then I have a two-year-old daughter. And so I'm, I'm fortunate in that I haven't had to have like the honest conversation with them yet, because obviously now I'm putting myself out there publicly and one day they will hear what I have to say. And I'm sure they'll stumble across maybe you know, this interview here and they're going to have questions. And so many people have shamed me for that. They said, haven't you thought about your children? Like, what are they going to think about you? You're, you're making a poor decision. But really the way I see it is I can only live my truth. I can only speak my truth and people have to just accept that that's, who I am, whether they like it or not. And uh, it's, it's just honesty, right? And so my children will unfortunately be subjected to the same thing of just hearing the honest truth. And I'm hoping that they know me and love me enough as a, a mom to them that they can see, you know, that I always tried to do the best I could and tried to be the best person I could despite the situations I found myself in. 
And I hope I can pass that along to them that at the end of the day, you know, we're all human. We all make decisions and sometimes we live to regret them or we view our decisions differently later in life. But it doesn't make you a bad person and you're always capable of change. Yeah. And, and let and, me let me let me say like that's that that part of it. Like I, I, obviously you're going to answer this any question on your personal perspective. But I want to be clear. I was not um, I was not asking about I mean, I guess it's part of the question, but I wasn't really asking about stigma uh, or things like that, though that obviously is a huge part of the conversation you'll have with them. Um, I was more even even just like with, with your sons, like your six year old son, as an example, like talking to your boys about how they treat women or the language that they use or the the, the, the pop culture um, references that they'll be privy to or whatever the case may be. Like, I, I would just imagine that that you you'll have a your, your perspective on some things will be more enriched uh, or, or deeper than, than some people. I like to hope so. Definitely. I, I will tell you my six-year-old son, he is a feminist through and through already. He is very equality minded. He is a champion of women, of girls. It, it makes me really proud because I know that there's so many men like that, but unfortunately because of hegemonic masculinity, so many men don't really feel like they can be a true ally to women without some kind of critique from their own, you know, male comrades right so my son is really interesting because obviously again this is an adult conversation and I haven't had that you know with him yet but he will say to me like who are you talking to today what are you doing and I'll just always keep it very basic like you know mom talks about men hurting women in certain ways and he's always like oh that's so wrong you know like I, I will never do that mom no matter what I will always love women they give us life they, they give us birth they are beautiful creatures you know he just has a heart of gold so i don't even know if it's going to need much influence from me i think he's just a natural you know socially minded child who has a love for all people and can see the bigger picture and doesn't want to be someone that rolls the dice to hurt someone for you know the gain of a personal orgasm over somebody else and yeah i i don't know we'll see check back in with me in about 10 years <laughs> well i mean hey that's that's the battle for any parent i i say this as if i know our guy's five so so we've got a we've got a long road ahead of us as well but uh but what a journey and, and probably his awareness to this point a credit to your parenting so so let me ask you this andrea in closing uh for now and i look forward to future conversations because i know you've got some things uh, i'm not even sure if i'm if i'm allowed to bring up everything that you're working on right now because i know you've got some some <laughs> i'll let you take the lead on that because i don't want to blow i don't want to make any announcements i'm not supposed to make here um but uh but i do know that you've got a lot of stuff going on uh with regards to messaging and storytelling and and obviously your involvement here on a number of different fronts but but let's talk quickly in closing about what this means like what the takeaway is so you know i i can think obviously there are there are uh, issues of municipal governance with regards to like licensing and oversight and different municipalities will have different uh rules around what they call the body rub parlors or, or whatever the case may be um Provincially speaking, uh, on the provincial political front, you know, I know that back in May, uh, Alberta's United Conservative government announced uh, that it was forming a, a, a human trafficking task force to address uh, issues of human trafficking. Uh, country singer Paul Brandt is chairing that as, as part of his um, commitment to this cause. And then obviously there are, there are federal issues with regards to federal legislation and Health Canada and, and, and a whole bunch of things to consider there. Um, in, in layperson's terms, like in plain, straight language, uh, what are a couple of things, maybe, you know, and the different levels of government that, that you'd like to see? What would leadership look like? Where do you see a deficit in, in leadership or, or policy? 
Um, what are a couple of the key things that you're focusing on? I think I, well, I recently had a personal one-on-one meeting with the police chief, uh, Chief Dale McPhee, and he's so wonderful. And he sits on that Alberta, Alberta Human Trafficking Task Force. And it was just such a very rewarding conversation with him. And I, I think I just want to echo what he said, which is the dollars are there, but the interwovenness of how we are allocating those dollars and how we are you know, distributing them is where our challenges are. And that's where we need to work on our strengths. So we do have the three tiers of government. We, like you said, have federal, we have provincial, we have municipal, and they're all kind of doing their own thing. And there's really not a unified front to say, this is a huge issue in Canada. This is a growing issue in Canada and we can do better. Uh, We will do better. And, oh, I'm sorry. I almost lost you there. (laughs) Um, So yeah, my phone has been going off. I, I don't know what's going on, but um, I'm not very tech savvy, but uh, so, yeah, it's just, I think that, you know, federally we're doing the right thing. We do have the protection of communities and exploited persons act. And that's really great. That is, you know, the law that says nobody who sells sex services should be decriminalized, but we do need to reduce the demand and we need to tackle that by enforcing, you know, uh, a penalty for circumventing consent using money. So what we're seeing, though, with that federally is that it's not being enforced. So even though we have what I think is the appropriate law in place, it's just not being applied correctly. And then you move to the province and they're just kind of in the middle. They're not really doing too much except for, like you said, some good advocacy work. And then you get down to the municipal level government and that's where we're seeing the regulations. And to me, that's one of the major problems that we have in Canada is that. Um, is that the municipal governments are willfully and purposely uh, circumventing the the federal law. And, you know, even in Edmonton here, we see it where people are saying, well, no, like we just had this report done that came forth to a city council meeting on September 30th that said, no, you know, the city of Edmonton is not infracting upon the PSIPA, the federal law. But, you know, if you look at the wording of the PSIPA itself, it clearly states that, you know, the material benefit offense is to take money from a commercial enterprise that knowingly sells sexual services. And it's no secret in Edmonton that, you know, all of our 30 plus massage parlors are selling sexual services. So again, it it comes down to this struggle of like, how do we tackle this, right? Do we just jump in and just shutter everything and do this? And I, I, I don't think that's the approach. Or do we try to work towards, you know, trying to just bring three levels of government together and try to improve our situation so that we can really start doing some good work and give some people some other opportunities. Andrea, um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing where you take this uh, conversation. I can tell you, you've had a captive audience here and uh, some really great comments. I want I want to leave you with a couple of these. Kim is watching right now and she says, uh, being honest with our children is the only way to break intergenerational trauma and give them a healthier path. Bravo to Andrea. She says, I'm, I'm so impressed. And I love this. This, this is uh, to me, feedback like this from Heidi is, is like the whole reason we're doing this show. Heidi says the idea of sex trade abolition seemed so taboo to me. Uh, I love how this guest is broadening my understanding, which I think is an amazing testament uh, to the work that you're doing, regardless of where people land on this, uh, the fact that you've allowed us to better understand it, uh, you, you, you've, you've, you've allowed us to have a, a perspective through your lived experience and now your advocacy that has enriched our understanding of this, which uh, is the whole point. 
So thank you so much for this. And, and thanks for being a friend of the show. We'll look forward to future conversations. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. And congratulations on all your recent successes and everything that you got going on. And I'll continue to listen for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's Andrea Hines. Um, If you want to get in touch with Andrea, uh, her Twitter handle is one of the best I've seen. Her last name, H-E-I-N-Z. So it's Hindsight, Hindsight 2020. Uh, If you want to follow her on Twitter and and, uh, I've seen she's happy to interact with people and and she's got, uh, like we said, some published papers and things like that. And and so uh, this is and and we'll find ways to get the other sides. I was going to say the other side of the story, the other sides of the story. I mean, I'd I'd be just as interested to, to speak to someone here on this show that would that would argue quite the opposite. And and then we can, you know, consider these different perspectives and and find uh, determine where we land and ultimately what we expect of our lawmakers and of our social agencies. And, and and where do we you know, where do we commit our time and efforts on on these types of of conversations? I, I, I just really appreciate that from Andrew. I thought that was great. I uh, want to give a shout out to one of our brand new partners here on the show. We introduced them uh, to you yesterday. Oh, whoa. That's kind of new lang- That's kind of new music. I'm th- there was one ad bed that I really didn't like, and I swapped it out for this one. Because like we before we started the show, we picked out uh, I want to say ten tracks, something like ads. ten tracks. Yeah, and I haven't been using all of them. And, and there was one that was just a little slow, so I brought this, this one. This one's kind of like <laughs> this needs Barry. Oh yeah, <laughs> this needs like a little Barry White. Okay, well let I'm me, not using this one let again. Me, let me tell you about Eden Landscaping. <laughs> Eden Landscaping has just joined the family of Real Talk Builders. I feel like this music, the the, the octave, I need to drop by a full octave here. Uh, but Eden, uh, we're going to be learning more. We're gonna, like ultimately, I want to get to a point. Where we're going to show you some photos of what they do because they do incredible uh, landscape design and then construction. So you don't have to work with, you know, you're going to pay like a landscape architect a bunch of money over here, and then you got to bring the plan over to here, and then they're going to pay to implement, and there's going to be fees and tra- no. This is your one-stop shop for reinventing or creating your front or backyard oasis. And now's the time to start thinking about it. If, if you didn't travel to an international destination, that's not even shade at the government. I'm just saying, if you didn't travel in the past year, some people are sitting on some cash. Some people are sitting on some savings. And a whole bunch of people, ourselves included, we, we put in some legwork even in our surroundings, in our, in, on our you know backyard fire pit, for example, where we were spending so much more time at home, wanted to invest in our home, and Eden Landscaping is all about that. So check out the link under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com, and you can learn more about what they're doing there. Also wanted to tell you, I mean, a lot of people right now are focusing on hitting the road and getting out of town. And are you, you going to give me another? Like, is there... Okay, that's pretty good. That's a little less. This is like a little more kind of. All right, here we go. This is one where this is a familiar one. This felt like hitting the road music. Yeah, this does feel like hitting the road music, doesn't it? Yeah. So Sam Brooks is just so damn good. People are sitting here right now and saying, okay, I know this. I know that if I stay within my own four walls for any longer, I'm going to go absolutely stir crazy. But I know I'm not supposed to leave the province. And I know I don't want to mix and mingle with a bunch of people. I know I don't want to put myself in harm's way. So what are my options? Well, let me tell you, the team at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge right now is ready to welcome you with protocols like you've probably never seen before. The lack of public interaction while preserving the experience of the stay is remarkable. From your very first interaction at the gates to the property, 
with their masked and distanced check-in staff to the changes that they've made to their housekeeping protocols. Obviously, with the main lodge closed, they've really perfected the rapid delivery of food from their menus straight to your room. People are able to keep themselves isolated while at the same time getting out into Canada's great outdoors. So January is a beautiful time to be out there if you absolutely need to get your head in the clouds. If you need to breathe that fresh Jasper air, if a hike around Lac Beauvert away from it all sounds perfect right now, you want to you want to comply with the travel directives, but you just need to get out. The Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge is ready to welcome you. You can check them out online, of course, and on all your social media platforms. I just follow the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge on Instagram just so every day I can get out to Jasper in my mind. An absolutely wonderful location, and we're, we're grateful for their support of Real Talk as well. You look like your, your, your face just lit up when I started talking about Jasper. I know this is a, a lot of people have, have sort of said Jas- Jasper's my happy place. It's your happy place. Yeah. And people are going, I need to I, I, I know I'm, I know we're not leaving the province uh, and, and I know that we need to keep to ourselves. But people just there's something about getting out and like going for a hike or I don't know how ambitious people are throwing on the crampons doing some ice climbing. That's not my jam. That's that's I find that to be a little bit nerve wracking. But for people to be able to get out there. And just get into the great outdoors for people's mental health. Like like our our our, count, our uh, counselors panel yesterday, the psychiatrist and psychologist Peter Silverstone, Kim Knoll, uh, talking about that. I mean, just the the impact that it can have on on your well being is huge. We're actually we're very annoyed. Uh, Kelly got snowshoes for Christmas, and there has not been a snowfall in the Edmonton <laughs> you don't area need since snowshoes. Yeah, I, like hurry up and snow. We want to play with our new toys. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, I I can be honest. I don't know if you've noticed this. This would be a small thing for you to notice. Have you noticed that I've not come into the I've not shown up for an episode of Real Talk yet with a with a jacket on like with an with an overcoat on? Yeah, no, because uh, I, it's just because you have nice suits. Well, <laughs> but but here's the deal. I'm actually quite a disorganized person and I don't know where my overcoat is. I, do, I can't find it. It's either at the dry cleaner or it's at a repair shop. I don't know where it is. This, by the way, is the real reason we don't pre-tape is because we can't get our wardrobe straight enough yeah, to we actually never, fake it properly. We would never be able to. Yeah, that's right. It would, I'd, be, I'd be wearing this color and then all of a sudden I'd be in a Navy suit and people would be like, what? we're not we're not that organized. <laughs> but it hasn't mattered because I have no. not needed a coat and, and we're now, what is it, January 5th? I've not needed a coat yet. Now, now people are going to People are going to be furious at you and I because you just complained that there's no snow and I've been complaining that the weather's been too mild and now we're going to get hit with like, you know, 16 inches of snow and minus 30 for eight straight days. There's always kind of that. I I feel bad for it because um, for a while, uh, Canadian University Press, an organization that I used to run um, that I still would frequently speak at their conferences, uh, it always comes in the middle of early early January because we're a student audience and we would try and make it so that it's not really interfering with the academic schedule too much. So I would often go speak at one of their conferences in the early January time and like clockwork, I would always leave the coldest, snowiest week in Edmonton behind me for probably about three or four years in a row. Um, so... It's probably not snowing because I'm not at that conference this year. There you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Got it. Scott <laughs> Scott wants to know why we're not talking about your sweater. Go Canada Go tonight. Go Canada. Very excited. Uh, 7.30 puck drop, I think, right? 
Is that right? 7.30? Correct. 7.30 punk I think drop. so. It'll be I'll, right after the bronze medal game. Although, as they say, check your local listings. I never want to be held responsible if we blow it. But it's so cool to me, uh, even though we're not able to be in the barn and watch it, it's so cool to me that it's happening in Edmonton, and, and it will be again next year. We know that. So go Canada, go. Big game tonight. Sam, beautifully done. Looking forward to tomorrow's show. Wheels already in motion. And, of course, we appreciate you being here with us, Real Talkers, each and every morning. Tell your friends. Share the links. Make sure you subscribe to YouTube right now. Subscribe to our podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.